Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and I am so excited to dive into the themes of mind, body, and soil with you each and every week. I want to just give you a really hearty thanks at the top of this episode for joining me on this journey of curiosity. When I launched the podcast back in March, I was just being pulled and guided by my own curiosity on so many different topics. Throughout the last months of doing this, that has been my guiding light, is just whatever is lighting me up and really tugging at those threads of curiosity where I just need to know more about certain topics or I need to learn from certain people. And finding that you, dear listeners, have those same curiosities and that you are enjoying these episodes. I've received so many beautiful messages over the last couple of weeks on how these guests have brought you to a deeper place within yourself. And I I know that these guests consistently challenge and deepen my own experience each week. So it's just so heartening to hear that it is resonant for you too. So thank you for listening. It means the world to me. Today's guest is Brandy Stanley, and this conversation is the medicine that I want to hear in the world. Over the years, I've listened to podcasts for almost a decade, and some of my favorite conversations are these true long-form conversations where you can dive into the lens and perspective of a guest and a podcast host and find a deeper connection to yourself within that experience. And I hope that today's episode will be that for you. I know that it was for me. And I think that Brandy is such a catalyst for finding a state of aliveness within ourselves. I've been reflecting lately that in my own life, it sometimes feels as if I'm hydroplaning. That experience when you're driving down the road and you hit a really big and wide puddle and you skate over it like it's like ice. And you can feel it in your car that you're just not making contact, that you're not connecting. And I think in our hurry to be busy and to produce more and to go from place to place and feeling to feeling, there is this experience of not dropping into our own aliveness. And this is something that I am searching for more of within my daily life. And Brandy is such a guide in that sense of awakening aliveness and drawing attention to it, to point at it and say, oh, we can find more of this within our human experience. 
and look at these beautiful books and these different modalities. And so I'm just so excited to bring you this podcast with Brandy. I want to keep the intro short so that you can just dive right in. I do have just a little bit of housekeeping. This podcast has been such a gift to me. And if you are enjoying these stories, leaving ratings and reviews wherever you listen to podcasts, act like little breadcrumbs to lead others in to these stories. This is true wherever you are, but if you listen on Apple Podcasts and leave a written review, I offer in an exchange of reciprocity to send you a little bit of snail mail in return. If you just take a snapshot and send it to me at my Instagram, Kate underscore Kavanaugh or Kate at groundworkcollective.com. It is such a pleasure to really connect in the real world through this means. And it's just a fun space for me. And it helps other people find this podcast and be led into these stories by the, the sweet musings that you leave. And so in that spirit, I'm going to read one review this week. This is from Dead Raider. So happy to have found this. Wow, this podcast covered everything I'm interested in. I don't usually finish a podcast or give it my full attention, but this one had me hooked. I'm completely on the new, fresh edge of learning about minerals and soil, and this talk was incredibly invigorating. I've always naturally been curious and interested in health and the extreme lack of nutrition education that doctors get. And it's frustrating to say the least that I feel like I'm on my own when it comes to mine and my children's health. Anyway, this is a very fascinating talk and I cannot wait to learn more. Thank you. Thank you, Dead Raider. I am so glad that you feel like you received some information and I hope that it felt like for a moment you weren't on your own. I'm so familiar with that feeling. And now, without further ado, I want to introduce Brandy Stanley and this deep exploration of the paradox of what it is to be human. Here we go. There's something that you do in your podcast that I really love, and you start off every interview with a quote from someone else's work. Yeah. And I think that this is just such a fantastic way to drop in. And so I have a quote for you <gasps> <Yes>. today, and <laughs> I thought that we could, we could drop into this Brandy style. Love it. I want to give a little bit of context for this quote. So th this quote comes from Fridjof Capra's Systems View of Life. And at the point where they are in the book, it's the point where the quantum theory is really coming online at the beginning of the 1900s. And they're trying to reconcile this idea of Newtonian mechanics and the quantum phenomena that they yeah. are observing and measuring. I'm already excited, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pumped. Keep going. So here's the quote. Every time they asked nature a question in an atomic experiment, nature answered with a paradox. And the more they tried to clarify the situation, the sharper the paradoxes became. I'm going to have to read this book. I bought it. And then the other day I was joking with you and I was like, oh, you weren't lying. This is actually a textbook. <laughs> yeah. Now I have to read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
This reminded me of you, and I, I also did a little due diligence. One of my favorite things to do in the world is to take a word that I feel like I know and that I use in my everyday language and to look it up. I think so often we are using words without having a sort of standard dictionary-style definition of them. I did this the other day with esoteric, and I also looked up the entomology and was just fascinated. But I did this with paradox and I did want to open this up because I think that this is, this is a word that not everybody is necessarily familiar with. And so the definition of paradox is a statement that seems to contradict itself, but may nonetheless be true to a person, thing, or situation that exhibits inexplicable or contradictory aspects. Three, a statement that is self-contradictory or logically untenable, though based on a value deduction from acceptable premises. And so I wondered if we just might open up with paradox. Great. I love that. <laughs> Do you want me just to talk about paradox? <laughs> and, and you're, yeah, yeah. I, I literally just want you to talk about paradox and how that has come into your work through this plus that and into how you hold yourself and complexity within yourself and within the environment that you interact with. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great place to start. And I, you know, I think I've been feeling recently in other interviews that I've done, like I haven't actually gotten to talk about this as much. And I'm, I'm very excited to talk about it because as you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about some, um, or a lot, I talk most often about aliveness, but, and they're related, of course. Oh, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Oh, oh we're going to, we're going to get there. <laughs> um, oh, we're going to talk about that. But yeah, paradox is actually a perfect place to talk about where a lot of my current journey started. I have this piece I wrote. It was one of the first pieces that I published sort of publicly online. I think I wrote it originally on Medium, and now it's on my own. Like You can see an archive of my newsletter on my site, and it's called A Case for Scientific Mess, because I had gotten into... I literally think it's the first thing that's on my website in terms of my newsletter archive, but I had gotten into science a lot, probably five or six years ago, and I often tell the story that I spent a lot of my life as an artist or more artistically leaning, like a writer or drawing and some other stuff. And sort of my dad's side of the family, or my dad at least is also like a guitar player, a musician, like sort of more artistically leaning. And in like high school and college and everything else, I just, I never did well in the sciences. I remember that biology was, I think the worst grade I got (laughs) in all of school and probably only beat out slightly by like algebra. So math and science were just like really not in my wheelhouse, or at least I didn't think they were in my wheelhouse. And I started listening one day. I was, as I do, I was listening to a podcast in my kitchen cooking. And I heard this interview of a woman who's a, who I think at least at the time, yeah, at the time was a current NASA astronaut. And I don't know what it was, but just like literally like chopping vegetables. I was listening and I had this like internal overwhelming sensation that was a question in the form of like, why did I never consider becoming an astronaut? (laughs) Like, and I meant it quite seriously. Like it was, I was not joking about it. And this was actually on my list to talk to you about. Love it. Becoming an astronaut. (laughs) And yeah, I, I, of course, did not, but it started this whole sort of line of questions for me in the sciences. And I started, I had already sort of been getting excited about 
through other people that I follow quantum physics. And so, yeah, I just, I started to see there's a part in a case for scientific mess, that piece that I wrote where I talk about how I'd been reading, I can't remember what it was. I think it was Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything or something like that. And then also Carlo Rovelli is one of the most poetic, beautiful quantum physics, like quantum physics writers on the planet alive today. And so I was reading a lot of his work and they were all sort of talking about how all of basically all of physics right now is trying to do the work of solving the riddle that is the, what seems like the way that the universe operates at the smallest level is contradictory to what the universe operates at, at the largest level. And so I just, I kept reading things and I, I, internally I was like, I actually, I don't think that paradox is the problem. I think paradox is the answer. I, you know, I, we keep trying to, and as your quote said, like we keep doing all the scientific work. And every time we ask a question, it seems like it opens up two seemingly dichotomous answers that lead us on another path of more questions. And so it seemed like sort of the further we dig into the way the universe works, the more paradox is unveiled to us. And instead of going, I mean, I want scientific pursuit to continue, of course, but it seems to me like the pleasure is not in the answer. It's in the pursuit of the questions and the process of uncovering what the universe is like is pleasure in and itself and not having to come to some sort of final answer that's underneath everything that says this is exactly how it works or why, but is actually how incredible that like the actual maybe answer is the magic is in the middle of all these things. And so... Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, sort of the more recent beginning, I guess, of my love of paradox. But even as a child, I was thinking about the other day, it's a thing, again, I, I haven't talked about publicly until recently, but sort of digging back into the religion of my youth and just seeing what feels like it still fits. And I remember growing up in the South and hearing, you know, stories about Jesus, you know, for whatever you believe, that I remember always just loving, like, my favorite parts about the stories and accounts of Jesus were like the rich are poor, the poor are rich, the, you know, who's first is last and who's last is first. Like everything was a paradox. And I just, I loved that, that it was like anything you thought about the world was just completely flipped upside down. And so I don't think it's just a current pursuit or a recent pursuit. I actually think that my whole life, I've just been fascinated by the idea of paradox or seeming, seeming contradiction, I guess. I love that. And you said something, you said, Paradox is the answer, not the problem. And, and the pleasure, the pleasure is in the pursuit of the questions. Right. And I think that this applies not just to the, to the scientific community, but I think this also applies to our quest for answers about ourselves and answers about the nature of the environment that we see around us and this constant quest that that that's the pleasure. The pleasure is in this sort of meandering course in life. And it really hearkened me back to this idea that, and I really relate to your thoughts on being a generalist, you and you and David Epstein, and how much of this is the pleasure is in the pursuit and it's finding these questions and going down these rabbit holes and seeing where that takes us in life. And, and it's, it's not linear and it doesn't always make sense. And it often invites us to hold seemingly contradictory or disparate beliefs, 
views ideas within us. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's even like, you know, I was listening to your Sarah Kleiner episode. Mm-hmm. I keep wanting to call her Jessica. Her name is Sarah. <laughs> um, Sarah Kleiner, where she was talking about her daughter who just wants to now meander on hikes. Like there is no goal any longer. It's just the the joy and sort of walking in nature. And yeah, I, I think that's, that's the whole deal is learning that. Yeah. I mean, it obviously like accomplishments are fun and to get somewhere that you were, that you've dedicated yourself to getting to is fantastic sometimes, but yeah. Focusing back in on, yeah, the pursuit of just your own pleasure and doing what you do. And, you know, uh, that even your response there just also made me think of, I always loved Elizabeth Gilbert has a story, you know, where she used to talk all the time on stages and in her books to people about pursuing your passion. And she eventually had like a woman come up to her that sort of changed her whole trajectory around this, where the woman was like, I'm sorry, I have literally searched my whole life for my passion and I don't know what it is. I've tried so hard. I'm literally devastated. I think she was suicidal. Like she was just like really upset at where she was at in her life. And you can hear me reflect something very similar in my conversation with David Epstein that like, you know, as someone who was getting older, but still hadn't found like a specific lane that I want to go, wanted to go down it was really, really difficult because I, I felt like I had all of this, this skill and, um, you know, like I knew that if I could put anything in front of me, I could pop, probably do something pretty decently, but I just couldn't figure out what I wanted to do. And like Elizabeth Gilbert eventually after sort of being faced with that response was like, I actually think the better answer is just pursue your curiosity. Cause it's, it's, always going to be a different thing and you'll pick one thing up and then put it down and pick something else up and put it down, you know? And even in, I think it was your recent conversation with, I'm sorry, I forget her actual name, but the shepherdess, the one on tanning Mm -hmm. hides. Yeah. Lacey Jean. Yeah. And talking about like, I think you used the quote, like I've, I've died a thousand deaths this year and all of, or no, I've, I've gone to a thousand funerals this year and all of them were mine, you know? So it's just like practicing that really. I could go on forever because it's just one long string of connections. (laughs) It is. And I think one of the things that I connect with in being a generalist and what you just said is that for me, curiosity has been a double-edged sword at times that here is this beautiful pursuit that has led me into all of these places that I never expected to find myself. And I have a seemingly endless supply of curiosity, but it's also meant that I don't always know where to focus it. Yeah. And I was relating to my husband. Yeah. Yeah. I was relating to my husband the other day that there are just all these little things and I'll hear something, you know, I'll, I'll be standing just like you were standing in your kitchen, listening to this thing. And why didn't I consider being an astronaut? And I have those moments several times a month, maybe several times a week where I'll be listening to someone and what they do. And I'll just be struck with this feeling of, Oh, is, I, I don't know if it's regret or if it's longing that, Oh, I, w- I want to know all about that. And I want to be that yeah. too. And, and so curiosity, yeah. double-edged yeah. sword. Yeah. It's um, actually speaking of etymology, I think the etymology of the word decision is to cut. Like when you make a decision about any one thing to focus somewhere, you have to cut something else out. Right. And so there is a death or a grieving of what you're not able to focus on in any one particular moment. And yeah, I think that's where 
you know, like the idea of this plus that my writing and the podcast were me coming to a realization that, you know, I tell the story also in the David Epstein interview that I, I sort of, I was just trying so hard to figure out what my thing was, you know, or even if it was like the next thing, what is the next thing? I just don't understand. And so I had mapped out sort of in these like big sort of Venn diagrams, like all of my sort of passions. And I was trying to figure out like, what does this all mean? And it sat there for probably two years, honestly, before I remember literally walking in the door one night, coming home after hanging out with friends. And I was like, oh my God, the skill is making connections between all of them. So for people like you and I, it's, it's hard. It's like both our gift, like, and our skill to be able to actually draw patterns and connections between things, which makes us endlessly curious people. But also we are constantly dying a thousand deaths because Mm. like you have to constantly choose something, which is, yeah, it's so hard. It's so funny too. Einstein's dreams is one of my favorite all times, all time books. And it's basically, I think is it Alan Lightman. I forget who wrote it, but the, the gist of the book is basically a fictionalized account of what it would have been like of Einstein sitting across from, I forget one of his like contemporary scientists and sort of in and out of him talking to this guy about general relativity and like what they were discovering and the nature of time. And then they break each sort of like moment of their conversation into little vignettes that are followed by, or it's followed by vignettes where they like tell fictional stories about how culture would operate if we conceived of time differently. And so it's, it's really like super mind expanding. Cause it's like, Oh, the way that we, work within time in our culture is actually completely socially constructed and we could think of it an entirely different way and it would completely change the way that society functioned. And one of the stories in particular I always loved was basically this idea that like, if we all lived forever, would you be a person who did nothing? Like just knew that you'd be around forever. So you just sort of like lazed around or would you try every job on the planet? Like, would you just move from one job to another? And I was like, I have zero question about what my answer is. Like I would do everything. Yeah. I would do everything. Absolutely. But it's hard to choose because it is a kind of death. And that you relating back the ideology of decision, uh, that really, that, that really hits home to me that it is to cut, that it is to, to sever a path that might be or might have been. And I feel in, in, I feel a certain, a sort of acute awareness of that within my own life. And I love that you brought it to time because time is one of, I think time is the thing I have talked about the most in therapy. <laughs> and and yeah. my 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 deep feelings about time and the idea that it is a social construct and we do have this chance to conceive of it completely differently and all i could think about when you said that was the movie arrival which i know is your <laughs> and favorite we've made movie it there. and it's also <laughs> yeah. one of my favorite movies <laughs> yeah uh, oh, and yeah. i wasn't going to bring it up that wasn't on my list but now that we're here i now think we should here. be here yeah it's the <laughs> If you've not been a listener of my stuff, like my sort of running joke on my show is that it's basically like my six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Like I can lead us at any point back to the movie Arrival. (laughs) So here we are. (laughs) Yeah, here we are conceiving of time in a different way. And I think that that also brings in this idea that it's not just time, but it is the language that we've created to explain time that in and of itself is limiting. 
Yeah, which is, you know, the my favorite part of the movie, which all linguists have told me on every account that they don't believe, <laughs> but it's called the Sapir Whorf uh, phenomenon or something like that, where apparently whatever language you speak completely changes the way that you conceive of time or like uh, changes the way that you behave or something like that. Basically, your language shapes your behavior um, and your beliefs in a lot of ways. And I'm like, I just don't, how is that not like there's, I think there's a portion of it that they disagree with that I've never be, like been able to articulate. So it's probably a both and <laughs> of course, but like, I just, in my experiential, like my ex- experience of the world. Yeah. I'm a, and also because I'm a writer, I have such a deep belief that language completely changes the way that we not only believe, but then therefore also like operate in the world and yeah treat each other and all kinds of other things. So yeah, language is a, uh, the appropriate, I think, thing to mention when you're talking about time. It is a, it is a kind of language. And I think it's been, I think in many ways it's been, it just, it just sits, it sits on my shoulder. And I, I think about time a lot, but my, my husband actually jokingly calls me Captain Hook. Like I can hear a ticking clock <laughs> anywhere if I am in a room <laughs> and somebody has a clock that makes any oh, sort of faintly audible tick. Oh, can you hear that clock? Do you hear that clock? I hear a clock. And, and (laughs) yeah, that's so funny. I, yeah, I'm so curious to know whether or not your therapist has been able to like unearth for you where that might come from. Cause I'm also curious about myself because I think I have that same experience in the world. Oh, I don't, I mean, I, I'm happy to get into it, but I don't, that might be a rabbit hole, but (laughs) we don't want to go down. (laughs) But yeah, I was going to say, um, yeah, I think I've gotten better at it because I mean, folks like, like Adrian Marie Brown is one of my favorite writers and speakers. And I think it's an emergent strategy where she just talks about like, there's always enough time for the right thing to happen. And the way she's talking about it is more like, there's always the, the, the right amount of time for the right conversation to happen in the room. Cause she is, she often facilitates like big, tough conversations, big, important conversations. And yeah, I think that like, I don't know. It's at least help when I get into that sort of like feeling of the ticking clock on my shoulder that that sort of phrase helps me remember like, yeah, I don't know. I just, I guess I have to like trust and trust the universe that whatever I've been led to today is enough. This was something that I had written down prior to, to getting on this call, which is I wanted to talk about trust with you. And usually I have really concrete objectives within my prep, And every once in a while, something will come in and it's just something that is itching at the back of me. And it's not something that I'm seeing in anybody's work. And for me this morning, as I was reading back over some of your essays, trust kept entering into it for me. Oh, fascinating. And how we rebuild the muscle of trust with the universe. And I think especially through the lens of you had mentioned something about how to fall back in love with the world that at <laughs> yeah. one point you had this, I think it was in your interview with Andreas Weber yep, where the one. you had this moment where you had to fall back in love with the world. And to me, that is an act of entering back into trust hmm. that there is, yep. <sighs> that there is something for you within the world, that there is good within the world. It just opens up a door of vulnerability when you fall in love and vulnerability requires some level of trust. 
Yeah. And it's, it's not just that, like it, it's so related to all of those things I talk about with Andreas in terms of falling back in love with the world, because I mean, in essence, the reason I got there is a cultural problem of distrust and hypervigilance and a feeling of threat everywhere you go. Anyone who doesn't believe what you believe is a threat and all kinds of ways that that manifests in our culture. And in general, for me, what that's become is a recognition that in my own body, I don't feel safe in the world. And so if I have to constantly be sort of hypervigilant of all the things that might be a threat to me socially, like socially belonging in any one particular group or my actual life or that my work will support me, that the universe always trends toward more life, which means if I give what I'm here to give, that it will give me what I need in return. That, yeah, it, it, it does require a sense of what you're doing is working on a sense of trust. If you don't feel safe in the world, you don't trust basically anything around you. You don't trust really even your own existence or yourself to do anything properly. I mean, part of that hypervigilance and the culture that we're in, in terms of, of like cutting each other out and how divisive we are and how much we talk about that is, I don't trust my, it's like, I don't trust myself enough to say even all the right things to make sure that I can stay within like proper social standing within this one particular identity group so that I will be safe in the world. So it, it's, it's not just social. It's also like ecological and biological. Like, I mean, my brain at all times wants to make sure (laughs) that I am safe and we live in sort of a constant world of unsafety and that's even within ourselves and have built, I think a lot of us, a distrust in our own intuition and an out, you know, we talked about this in our episode together on work plus rest, like, uh, um, distrust in my own intuition that I can heal on my own or that like inside of me is all the wisdom I need. I don't have to outsource. I don't have to constantly be on social media to see what all the like right things to do or right ways to behave or right proper things to say. Like I can, you know, I can learn to trust myself. And all of that has been a really long process really since probably that moment of sort of, you know, I tell that story more fully, like you said, in that conversation with Andreas, but of sort of stepping away from, um, social justice culture at a very particular part and point in time where it was like, you know, uh, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but I needed a little bit of distance to try to sort out for myself where I was, where someone else was, why I was so constantly angry at the world and how, yeah, my body was just like in a constant state of hyperactivation and anxiety Like it was one riot after the next, it was one protest after the next, it was one, like one more black person being killed that we had to show up for and just have a conversation about what the fuck we were going to do. Like it it was just so constant and none of that is bad in and of itself, but I just, I needed space to be able to figure out for myself, like, what do I believe? What, like the, the actual nature of the universe, like I can't hate everything as much as I feel like I've been led to hate everything I hated. And, you know, part of my story with Andreas too, is just sort of sharing that like I, yeah, part of falling back in love with it was just that like I had begun to, yeah, I I just couldn't, I just didn't feel like it was possible that, that like even that message was compelling to anyone that we were trying to convince quote unquote, that like should live a different way so that the world could be more just because I was so miserable inside of it, you know, and, uh, I love and emergent strategy. Adrienne Marie Brown talks about this kind of culture that we've built within social justice communities. And she articulates it far better than I do, but 
it was the first time I had sort of heard someone at a larger level, like reflect back to me what I was experiencing. But yeah, all of that is interconnected in terms of um, eventually me in this greater exploration and probably why you're hearing me, like the message you're hearing when I'm writing all those essays is a process of regaining my own sense of trust in myself and my safety in the world and in my own capacity to heal and all of these other things. I love that. And I, oof. I know that was long, so there's a lot there. <laughs> there's a lot there. And, and I'm really, I really appreciate you sharing that journey because I think that a lot of us in this divisive world are feeling, well, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? And there is this biological imperative that we want to be in the in-group because that represents a, a safety in numbers right. and within the context of our, our social world that we have built and that that is our family and that is our group and it conveys connection and health and safety to us. And so, yeah. you know, to be ostracized is a, a natural fear just in terms of what it means to be human. And one thing that you and I have talked about is what it means to exist within social groups that have very differing views of the world and that might not ever come together, but in being those sort of generalist, curious types of people, we span those spaces. And I think that I know that my life is richer for it. And I think that it, in that way, it also trends towards more aliveness, that there is more aliveness in having an array of differing viewpoints that you're surrounded by and that you, you don't have to agree with all of them, but you get this really beautiful chance to experience them through the lens of the humans that have gone on a journey and arrived at that viewpoint for themselves. Yeah. And it's, um, in the last few years, I've been hearing a lot more about spiral dynamics and just sort of evolutionary, um, yeah, I don't know, um, growth, I guess is what I'd call it. And yeah, I mean, tribalism is a massive part of some of the earlier chains of spiral dynamics. So it, I think it makes total sense. Like when you apply spiral dynamics to human history and sort of where we're at and that the edge cases are sort of the folks who were like sort of spiraling, not I love, I was listening to Richard Rohr recently and his, uh, the art of letting go. And he talks about spiral dynamics and it's not that any of the things previously in like your evolution were bad. It's that you take what you're learning now and integrate everything that you've learned before. So you're sort of appropriately, it's, it's, it's an and it's a both and right. So you're adding rather than subtracting or replacing and, yeah, that the folks who are sort of in different rungs of the spiral have sort of grown to a place apparently in that model where you can hold much more complexity and nuance and all of those things. But there are still lots of people in different places that, again, are neither good or bad. It's where we're at. But tribalism is a really big deal. And so I think we're feeling that tension of like culturally just like a shift up that spiral, I think. There was something else I was going to say there, but I forgot the other thread. <laughs> no, that's beautiful. I wasn't familiar with spiral dynamics. And so that, that's something mm, that really interests things. me. Yeah, please, yeah. please 
please send them and we'll include them in the show notes as well. Because I think that this is something I'm seeing at this time in the world. And I think that we are, we're all on different separate journeys and you don't need to be anywhere, but I'm at this point where I want more complexity. And, and I think you were the first person that introduced to me this concept of what it, what it means to hold complexity in those words. And that, hmm, I think that, to me is a space where more aliveness lives that complexity mm. is. Yeah. Yeah. That's what actually, that actually reminded me of the other thread I was going to say, because in, in our conversation um, on my show about meat plus health, there's a portion, I think more toward the end, or um, you talk about an ecology that life thrives at edge zones. It's basically like all life is most thriving in the places where two seemingly separate things come together And as always, nature is just the most beautiful model for talking about any of these things. And yeah, it's, it's not like we talk about all over the place in those conversations also, like they're not mirrors. They are just one and the same that, you know, that tendency in nature is true of ourselves. And if we can like culturally, and if we can sort of recognize that life happens in those like the most aliveness is in the edge zones. It gets easier and easier. It's still a practice for me, right? I mean, I'm in community every day and every day, the inclination that I've learned in my, like at a cellular level to run when someone believes something that I don't believe is still so strong. So I really understand it and I have so much compassion for it and see it. Yeah. As like a a unnecessary part of our, you know, sort of human evolution, but yeah. Uh, it's the aliveness at the center of things that really gets me pumped. I want to talk and about I, aliveness. Oh, go ahead. If you have more, I was just going to say, and you know, like as I've grown and being able to hold complexity and therefore also be in closer intimacy with people, like it's actually allowed me not only more, but deeper intimacy with people. And I feel now the actual like embodied, embodied sort of richness and the value of holding all those things. So I like in sort of believing different things, but holding them together. And then ultimately, honestly, coming to the conclusion that we all basically believe the same thing, but in very different ways. (laughs) So yeah, it's, um, I have felt I've, I've been, um, oh my God, I'm going to use a, an old Christian word, which is blessed. (laughs) I hate that word. Um, I've, I've been (laughs) gifted, I guess, uh, the opportunity to do that you know, I, I worked through it long enough to actually be able to hold that complexity. And now I'm seeing the fruit of that. I think that it is such a gift. And I agree. I agree that it is a gift. And I agree that it'll lead, that it leads to more intimacy. My relationships with people are more intimate because you're able to get past certain layers of protection that we put up when somebody doesn't share our belief. And if you can drop some Right. I'm not going to say all of, but if you can drop some of your, some of your judgment or some of the walls that come up when you meet a belief that you're, that is different from your own within someone else, all of a sudden a deeper connection is possible. Yeah. And I mean, to go back to the beginning of our conversation about the idea of paradox being the sort of the thing that lies behind how the universe operates, basically, if, if paradox is how the world works, then if we're not able to hold paradox and complexity, it means that we aren't actually experiencing the depth of what lies behind life, right? Like we just, we don't have as much access to it. Like it's like, of course, 
I'm being like the more you and I, I think as we've talked about this stuff, like recognizing like the, like we're trying to put language to it. Right. I think you and I just like, what is it that like the more that we dig into this stuff, the more we crave it, the less we need, the more sort of the bullshit goes away and we get deeper and deeper. And it feels like I just, I need less. I need fewer relationships. I need less media. I need less food. Like, because yeah, the, the nutrient density we keep talking about really is just speaking to the paradox of that lies behind nature. And if we can't hold paradox, every time we try to get into deeper and deeper layers of aliveness and life, then of course, like we're withheld from that until we can actually approach that in a feeling of safety and knowing that, I mean, life and paradox is what the world wants for us, but until we can just impossible. So it's more, yeah, it's surface level living until you're actually able to hold all of those nuances. I don't even know what to say. (laughs) (laughs) I think that just summed, uh, that just summed everything up uh, that could possibly be said. Um, We're done here. We can go home. (laughs) We are home. I think, I think that this, this makes me want to get into the act of aliveness. I'm not even going to try to follow that up with a question. I think it would be to to not give credence to the weight and the gravity of what you just said and how beautiful and perfect it was. And so I want to kind of couple this with a conversation of what it means to you to tend towards more aliveness. And in this, I pulled, I pulled some of your your discussion from, and I didn't, I didn't pull the essay that it was from. We'll have it in the show notes about the erotic. Oh, that was probably many. (laughs) I read about the erotic all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Because I think that this has a really big point within the conversation of aliveness. And I pulled, I pulled a little section of that essay and I'm going to read, I'm going to read it because I love your answer for what the erotic is and how it ties into aliveness. And you're talking about um, Robin Wall Kimmerer's definition. Brilliant. No. Yeah. But anyway, it says, I'm not sure that that's true. Actually, that might be for uh, something I'm else. I'm sure it if you say it, I can tell you who it is. You say, when Esther Perel speaks of the erotic, she means a quality of aliveness or radiance. When Audre Lorde writes about the erotic, she called it a measure between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos of our strongest feelings. Mixing it all then, I might describe the erotic as an aliveness in the middle space between all matter. And (laughs) sometimes I write things that are cool. (laughs) You write things that are cool. A lot of the time your, your written body of work is stunning. And I think it is a roadmap to somewhere I want to go. And I think that somewhere is the middle space between all matter. And I think that what you just said in your beautiful, I don't know, call it a monologue, a soliloquy, whatever we want to call it, really leads back to this idea of aliveness and eroticism. Yep. Yeah, I think that's so true. And yeah, I think those are the concepts I write about most often is eroticism and aliveness. And yeah, I guess I love the idea of trust also, I think being in there. Hold on. I'm like, literally, I'm searching for something in a book because I want to actually quote it to you. It came up this morning because they're, you know, part of why, like where my story, I'll try to talk (laughs) while I look for it. Part of my story in terms of aliveness really was a genesis of reading Andreas's 
Andreas Weber's work. And so, you know, his, his book that we talk about a lot and that conversation I have with him is Matter and Desire and Erotic Ecology. And so it was, again, like, you know, I love, so this book I'm looking in now, basically, so it's called Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul, Celtic Wisdom for Reawakening to What Our Souls Know and Healing the World. And there's a part I read in it this morning that I'll sort of paraphrase, which is basically, you know, in order to recognize truth, we actually have to have it in us innately somewhere. Like we actually have to know what truth is in order to see it outside of us. And he talks a lot about how like religion and wisdom of all kinds is really just, it's not from outside of ourselves. It's helping us to remember what already lies deepest within us is what's sacred. And a lot of what John Philip Newell, the author of this book talks about is that there was a very intentional, very specific moment within religion in the world and Christianity and how Christianity has sort of come to where it is today that was in, I think, somewhere around the 400s, where basically the Roman church had basically taken over everything but hadn't quite yet made it to the British Isles and Celtic faith, which was more Druidic, but it was very much the entire thing, basically, like he talks about how there weren't really anything, there wasn't really anything about like doctrines so far as that faith really went. Like it was more just like a deep belief in the sacredness of the earth. And at some point in the sort of like religious, like colonial sort of push of the Roman church through to the British Isles, there was a, a difference very clearly in two different doctrines. And one was in the Roman church, which was matter is not sacred. And basically all wisdom lies within very particular people. So you have to come through particular people like priests in order to access it. And that was very convenient for empire because when you're growing a society and you want to be able to destroy as much as possible or extract as much as possible or take advantage as much as possible of a people and of the earth, you have to make sure that people believe that neither of those things is sacred. And so there is a literal like desacralization of matter of the earth of nature in order that empire might exploit it to its own ends. And so when that happens, all of these more native ancestral indigenous traditions in the Celtic world started to get taken over, which were a belief in the feminine, uh, a deep seeing that, sacredness ran through all of life. All matter is sacred, right? And so Andreas, in our sort of modern philosophical texts, someone who lives today, who believes in the sacredness of all matter, talks about how like the eroticism that happens in all of life that we're, and we talked about some of this also in our episodes together, that all things are interrelated. We are constantly in relationship with all things. We're always in and out of each other. And that is an erotic act. And like, we are constantly becoming everything around us. Basically we are what we eat. We are what we eat eats. Like we are all of those things. And so, yeah, Andreas was the first person that like really sort of launched my, I don't know, like my sort of own trajectory around the idea of aliveness, of course, in addition to Esther Perel and Audre Lorde and all these people I've always loved that talk about um, aliveness. I'm still, I got on a whole rant and then I forgot to look for the quote. If you want a beautiful rant, I'll try to look for it. It was a beautiful rant. Well, it kind of leads me into something else that I want to discuss with you, which is this idea of coming back to 
a sense of faith, a sense of spirituality and, and what that means. And I know that I've been on this journey to identify spirituality and a belief in a God of my understanding within my own life. And I think that you just really defined for me what that has been, which is the relationship between all things that we are constantly coming in and out of one another, whether that's looking at the way that minerals upcycle from soil to plant, to animal, to human back into the soil. And that that has really connected me to something that feels bigger than myself, which is just the sort of interconnectivity of all things. And I know that you have also had a journey, but I don't want to lose the thread of aliveness either. Yeah, I I don't think I, I don't know if I can, for whatever reason, come across the quote I thought I was looking for, but a couple things I'll read that I think will we'll get to in other ways or like are related, which is number one, the path to well-being is not about becoming something other than ourselves or about acquiring a spiritual knowledge that is essentially foreign to us. It's about waking up to a knowledge that is deep in the very fabric of our being. And it's about living in relation to this wisdom, which again, I think like when John Philip Newell talks about Jesus, again, if we're, (laughs) we're talking about that one particular religion that like revelare again, going back to like the etymology of words is actually about uncovering. It's about unveiling. So it's when that split happened between the Roman church and the, you know, Celt or the Roman church sort of took over uh, the Celtic church or the traditions in a lot of ways, or that became sort of the dominant, the predominant basically religion of all of Western culture that we still live within today. Like those ramifications are still like part of what we're actually talking about here, because again, all things are one and the same. So the religious stuff happened at the same time that scientific stuff split sacredness from matter and also couldn't see sacredness inside of like the scientific. And so all of that is related, but he talks about how like, that whole piece where the Roman church sort of felt like any sacredness was outside of you. You had to go somewhere else in order to find it or through other people in order to access it. That I love John Philip Newell for talking about how like the idea of like revelation or revelare is actually uncovering what is already deepest within you. So he, he feels like his job in the world as a spiritual teacher is actually just to help you uncover what is actually already deepest inside of you. And yeah, part of that to me is, yeah, I don't, I guess the like sort of the weird going back to the quantum physics thing and interlacing that with aliveness too. I think that was a huge part for me around aliveness in terms of like, we are literally, and I don't know, maybe I should use the the word literally um, (laughs) a little less liberally, but uh, because I'm not a scientist (laughs) or like I'm a different kind of scientist, I guess, what Octavia Butler might call in uh a hobby scientist, mm, um, citizen scientist, way. armchair scientist. Yes. Yeah. Citizen scientist. So yeah. Um, but in any case that from what I can tell from quantum physics, basically every, and also anyone who does mushrooms, <laughs> like every time you hear a story about someone who does psychedelics, their basic response is all life is love. And also the visual experience of doing a psychedelic usually results in someone seeing like mandalas, like energy in everything around us. And so I think Andreas talks to that, speaks to that from a biological lens that just says like, like everything around us is alive and there are certain materials that have more or less aliveness in them. So like when you're sitting in a prison cell and it's just concrete and 
bars and whatever, there is a literal uh, lessening, a dampening of aliveness than there would be if you're sitting out in nature among the forest that's just like pumping with life, right? And so that there is a literal, I think, um, aspect of all material things around us literally being imbued with not just aliveness, but whatever you call God or the sacred, that there is something sacred within our matter that I think a lot of us are coming back to in various ways, whether it's through religion or through science or whatever it might be of actually seeing that all things are alive. And as Andrea says, all things trend toward more life. Everything wants more and more aliveness. And so that's what we are here to do and to help liberate in each other also. I think I got at your question in some <laughs> really roundabout you did. way. And you incorporated, I liked your incorporation of John Philip Newell and this idea of this intentional split between matter and the sacred that happens. And I think we are, we are witnessing the ramifications of that split in real time in the way that we have come to view the world, in the way that we have come to be in, in spaces and in communion with all of the matter that surrounds us. And you had another quote in one of that, one of those essays from John Philip Newell that said, the spiritual is not opposed to the spiritual. He believed for God is to be found in the material realm of creation. Yeah. Yes. That one. Yeah. For God is to be found in the material realm of creation, not an escape from it. And I think that that's where Mm -hmm. that aliveness lives is here in this material realm where everything is just thrumming and thriving. And you said something so perfect, which is we're here to wake up, to evoke, to elicit that aliveness in all of the people around us. Yeah. John Philip Newell talks about it as a memory that, that like sort of Christ comes as our memory, like to help us remember what is most true, not to change us in any way that's different from who we naturally are, but to help us remember what is most true about ourselves and about the world. And I, I mean, it's, I love that communion and also, I mean, I think it speaks to your, like your own journey. You know, I listened to you talk about like what it is to go from eating, you know, all vegetables to becoming a butcher. And like, you're literally like, you're touching and slaughtering like the meat that you end up eating. And that is, you are going deeper and deeper into, um, matter. Like you're, you're getting closer and closer to it, which of course then results in it feeling more and more and more sacred and alive to you. And of course, again, is also paradox at the, like you're getting closer and closer to the heart of that paradox, what it is to be someone who lives when something else dies. Right. So I don't know. I, I, I think it just says so much about what you've ex- experienced also. I think you just summed up how I feel about my work better than I ever could have. <laughs> and I'm really appreciative of that because I think that <laughs> new bio. I'm yeah, I'm going to have to clip that. And this is what Brandy said about my work. And it's, it's true. <laughs> uh, there is. And I think it's this desire to be, when you said that, all I could see is this idea that matter can't matter can just get infinitely closer together, but it can never really touch. And I think it's that same desire to just perpetually be striving to be closer and closer to the beating thrumming of heart of something that you can't quite 
touch that you can't quite yeah. reach. And, and that's I think the whole to bring thing, it, right? That's the whole thing. And <laughs> to bring it back thing. to the beginning, there isn't an answer. There is just a perpetual, beautiful quest towards. Yeah. I mean, that's what matter and desire talks about, right? Is it's a, con- it's a story about how we are all completely enmeshed. What I eat ends up becoming my cells, ends up getting pooped out of me into the, you know, into land that ends up getting more nourished. And then, you know, it's this big cycle. And so even though things are entering me at this very intimate, sacred, erotic level, we still at the same time aren't actually ever touching <laughs> like in science. Like I, we can't ever yeah. actually become each other. Right. And so, yeah, it is a complete paradox. And so it makes sense that like, that's why, you know, when I wrote a case for scientific mess, it was like, we, we have these scientists who keep trying to find the answer, which is like, they're trying to touch it. And I'm like, you, you have already touched it. The answer is that we can't ever touch it. <laughs> that's the whole deal. And if you can't ever touch it, then you have to get pretty comfortable with and um, excited by just the pursuit, right? It just has to be the process. Yeah, you have to. And I think you also cover this in your, in your essay, scientific faith versus scientific religion. And I think that nothing has ever been more relevant right now than this question of, of what that pursuit is. When you realize that you've had the answer, you can't touch it, that you have forsaken the sacred in favor of this very sterile view of matter. Mechanistic, right? That like trying to parse out all of the separate individual parts is a function of industrialism, which is what has killed our agriculture and everything else, right? Like again, everything, the cosmos is our soil is everything else, right? So yeah. It's, it's all the same. It's all, you know, it's, it's that meme where it's like, no, it's the same, it's the same picture. And, and I think that, we see that in the the fractal structure of the universe that everything is just sort of mirrored back to one another in this sort of beautiful kaleidoscope funhouse of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Of, yeah of everything and there is and i actually i pulled a quote from your your essay scientific faith versus scientific religion, which we'll link to in show notes. And this is what was, it was, it was Robin, Robin Walkimer. Yeah. Yeah. Talking about the practice of science. And you said item number one, then the practice of science via Kimmerer is a faith. Faith doesn't dissolve with science. It is enlivened by it. Questions lead to more questions. Awe is magnified. People are invited in curiosity and risk are encouraged. Magic and myth and math and mystery and poetry and paradox are welcome. Quantum physics and the theory of relativity can both be true and yet fundamentally opposed. Item number two, however, the scientific worldview is a religion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which eventually, funnily enough, uh, ends with a quote from a rival. <laughs> like, you know, everything can be, everything is a tool and we can use tools, you know, well, the, the quote from Arrival is something more like, um, everything can be a weapon or a tool. It depends basically how you use it. And yeah, I think religion and science and all kinds of things are used as weapons so often instead of tools that inform us. And one of the other things I love about John Philip Newell, and I'm just going to like just rep his name hard right now because I'm just, I'm in his work and it's just fascinating me endlessly. 
as I try to sort of work through my own very complex, knotted feelings around religion and Christianity in particular, and my own past, like you said, which we can get into more, but yeah, I would love to do that. But yeah, it was like, he has this line that what if all religions aren't meant to compete against each other? They're here to complete each other. Like they're all sort of puzzle pieces toward that like us trying to touch the thing that none of us will ever be able to touch, you know, at least on this side of the veil or whatever that is. And I think that that just seems so much more true to me. And if, you know, even in a recent conversation I had with Emily McElroy, we talked, I interview her about the intersections of painting plus prayer. And at some point I was like in the second part of that series with her, I start by sort of going like, I was having this revelation the other day out on a walk that I, I was just sort of like, what if almost, you know, speaking to what you said earlier, like the cut off, like the making a decision, right. And it has felt to me like my whole life, if I make a decision on any one particular thing, let's say I choose to re-engage with Christianity, that it means that I'm cutting off all other truth. And where I've actually come in my life is a place of realizing that when I make a choice, it enlivens everything else even more, everything else becomes more true. And I don't know how that applies to what we do in the world and having to make a decision on like, this is my path today but Mm, maybe we're not losing them as much as we think we are. Maybe it's helping us dive even deeper into like you being a farmer is actually you being a quantum physicist, you know, like maybe you making your own work become more and more alive because you're becoming more and more intimate with it. Like it's a very Wendell Berry way. I think of thinking about the world, building an intimacy with a place and with your passion and whatever that might be. And maybe that, yeah, maybe the real truth is more, when you make a decision, as much as you're cutting it off in one way, again, a paradox, you might actually be diving deeper into the, all the other things that you want to learn. Hmm. You just touched on my deepest regret, which is not being a quantum physicist, or I, I would go back and do quantum biochemistry if I were to go back to school and be in academia. But as you were speaking about this, I had this picture of a tree branch and what happens when we make a decision, right? Which is this sort of act to cut in a way. And it leads us down this particular path and you can't really go back. And I think about this a lot, actually, within the context of podcasting, that you'll have a guest like you on and you'll say five beautiful things and I can only choose to begin to tease out one. Yeah, I hate that. And in that decision... (laughs) I have made a choice to let the other things fall away because inevitably that, that question will lead to all these other questions. But I was thinking about that within how a tree begins to, to branch out. And then at the terminus of that is a leaf, which is in many ways the organ of absorbing the sun of creating aliveness within that organism. And so as we make these decisions where we can't go back down these bifurcating paths, it is leading to that, that thing, that aliveness. Yeah. And yet, you know, as well as I do that, that leaf will fall and it would become soil, which will become another tree that gets to branch off in all of its own directions. Right. (laughs) Oh, esoteric. (laughs) (laughs) esoteric okay so esoteric and i'm gonna i'm gonna pull this up because i looked this up in an entomological sense the other day and i was so struck by it comes from the ancient greek belonging to an inner circle (laughs) 
Yeah, and that is a both and gonna, also. I'm just going to leave so. that there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll leave that there also. That can be another branch yep. we follow, but I'll think I'll leave it there. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's just good to hold. Now that, now that we've really, we've really talked about aliveness, I do want to come back to this idea of faith and coming back to a finding a faith spiritual. I mean, this doesn't have to have, and I think for a long time, even these labels, I felt a little uh, skittish of. I didn't even want to talk about them. You you and everybody else, I think. We talked about that that feeling that somebody says something that you don't agree with and instantly the wall comes up within you. And this had been a lot of my experience around this. And now as that wall has begun to soften and I've begun to explore this and have found that a lot of other people are exploring this too, which I think is, is really beautiful. And the lens that you are exploring this through sort of reconciling a, a very particular faith of your childhood with finding something that suits you on a cultural background and within the context of your life. I'd just love to hear your experience around that. Yeah. I, I might start with just saying, I think, yeah, when I first started pursuing this and even on that sort of, um, drawing I had where I had sort of mapped out all of my interests, I have the sort of side thing at the like top right that basically says, Oh my God, these are all just vehicles for meaning. Like they're all languages through which we languages or lenses through which we view the world. And so when I think of religion or maybe more fitting for, I guess, today's language, like it feels better to to say spirituality because religion gets a little bit iffy (laughs) for people. That's where I think the dogma comes in. Wall comes up. Yeah. The wall comes up that, Yeah. To me, it's, I mean, what you just read me or, or, you know, read of my writing in terms of the scientific faith, right? (laughs) That feels uncomfortable for a lot of people to pair together, but awe and wonder and curiosity and magic and mystery, like any good, honest scientists will tell you they actually don't know anything. (laughs) Like every time that they, again, every time they uncover something, something else is unveiled. And so to me, there's nothing different between science and religion or spirituality in terms of the human desire from literally like the birth of man to go look like awe. Oh my God, look at the cosmos. Oh my God. Can we get there? What is that thing? Like that, that is a pursuit of mystery at its core, you know, like just a constant search for mystery. And so I don't think that religion to me at this point, like, or never really has been like practically how it's like genuine, like practiced is a very different story than, and again, that's, that's like the difference between scientific faith and scientific religion. There's a difference between my experience of religion inside of the very rigid structured walls of Christianity and the harms that has caused me and so many other people and what I have always felt lied like behind the universe. And that to me has never gone away, even though I've had sort of like, not sort of a very tumultuous history with religion and Christianity in particular, and which I, I can break into. But I think I just wanted to start by saying like, for me, this is like why I can read someone like John Philip Newell and Robert McFarlane and Richard Rohr and 
Adrian Marie Brown and Audre Lorde and Octavia Butler, like all we're doing is just like standing next to each other, like pointing up at the sky basically, or like out to other things and going, wow, <laughs> like that's it. Just like, wow. <laughs> right. Like, uh, isn't it incredible? Like that, that I think is faith to me. Do you, I'm going to, I have to, I have to pause you because I have to know, do you think we're still doing that? Do you think we're still going around and looking at one, one another and saying, wow, look at that. I mean, not, I mean, I, maybe this is part of the spiral dynamics. Like I think part of our evolution, like I think deeply no, in a lot of cases, like I think a lot, we have become so dogmatic. Like we have turned faith into a weapon because like, again, like, I mean, even if just taking, applying it to Western world, like capitalism dominates the way that we operate economically and it is generally, and this is a whole other thing. I just, I will, I won't speak to economics. It's just not worth going into, but hoping that your listeners hear that I'm about nuance and complexity, but let me just say in a very broad way, capitalism is built on, and I guess more in a Charles Eisenstein way, it's not just capitalism. It's also socialism or like anything that is actually built on an interest-based economy is literally built on top of exploitation. Someone has to make more in order, like someone has to make less in order for someone else to make more. And so all of those structures are built on something that will continue to expand the gap between rich and poor and all kinds of other things that you can just go read Charles about because he's way more brilliant at that. But nonetheless, capitalism is built on exploitation. And John Philip Newell speaks to like in the, within the church in the early days of Christianity, that empire got into bed with religion around the 400s. Like those became one in the same. And so the, the culture that we live in today, economically, socially, spiritually, is built structurally on a lot of the mechanisms that feed and speak to and our belief systems about exploitation. And so, of course, a lot of what we live in and a lot of what we believe is actually separateness. It's something else isn't sacred, so I can exploit that. And so <laughs> I went on a rant and then I totally forgot what your original question was. I was getting at something there. Have we I'm lost so that sense of you are not, you <laughs> yes. are beautiful at this. Have we lost that sense of looking at one another and saying, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think, um, as Charles talks about often, I think we have been living in a very particular story. It doesn't mean that the story is true. <laughs> it means that we are living in a story. It's just like that Einstein's dreams. We are living in a story of time. We're living in a story of economics and um, separation and all of these things that sort of co-feed each other. And so I think the inclination toward faith is a different story that a lot of us have either forgot. And again, I think that's why like the idea of what, again, whatever you believe about Jesus or Christianity, like even the concept that revelation is about uncovering, that there is something that is deeper, that is more true. That's the most true about you and about us and about the universe that we all go, I mean, wow. It's like, it's wild that we're here. It's wild, you know, like this is, it's wild. It's so weird. So yeah, I think less of that inclination exists, but I think the more that we get into complexity and nuance, the more you have to just go, like the more a scientist just sits back, like just sees that they can't answer the ultimate question in any way that you just have to be like, wow, you know, but I do think we're doing it less and less. I think that this is not a uniquely human thing too. I think that one of the things that struck me as you were speaking was, I, I don't know if you know this, so so all humans seek out vistas. 
uh, these big panoramic views where we can see a large portion of things. And a lot of this is that it means that our parasympathetic nervous system can come online as our vision goes into panoramic vision and we're able to see that we are safe. But I think there is also a component of awe Huberman. within that. Yeah, this is very, this is very Huberman. And my husband and I got married on top of a mountain that we love to hike together. And we got married at this point that we referred to as the Bobcat's toilet. I love that this is where I'm going to take this. Um, <laughs> well, okay, okay, let's do it. The Bobcat's and, toilet. <laughs> the Bobcat's toilet. And so this is on top of this, this mountain in Colorado that we love to meander up to. I don't even know if you could call it hiking, though it certainly is pretty difficult hiking. And there's this point at which this ledge comes out of the mountain and you can just see everything. And there is this moment of profound awe. And then you look down and there's all of this bobcat scat. And so (laughs) (laughs) clearly we are not the only ones enjoying this view. Mm -hmm. But as I, as I talk about this, you know, that moment when you're hiking up a mountain, all of a sudden there's a vista and this chance to see everything in, in all of its, its glory, that same awe is available to us when we're doing the dishes and it's available to us when we are sitting and having breakfast with someone we really enjoy talking to, or when we're having a podcast with someone whose words deeply resonate with us, which is happening to me here in real time is this sense of awe. But I think that it's something that we have lost that this emotion going towards awe is less and less frequent within us unless we actively work to cultivate it. Yeah. It's a, I think when you are living in a different story, it's, you know, you and I both probably resonate a lot with the idea that like in order to feel a sense of wellness in our culture, you have to work so hard upstream it's an upstream climb. And I think living in any different story means that in order to like really live into a different story, you not only have to work hard upstream to like really access that feeling of joy and awe and mystery, but it requires, as Charles says, other people who hold your hands alongside you. Like you have to actually find people like you and I that like can actually even across distances be like, no one else is believing this with me except for these like six people. And we're fucking in it together. Like, cause yeah. Cause holding your hands amidst the other story is a really hard job when you're on your own. Um, so I think that's super important. And then, yeah, it's so funny that idea of like, I mean, even nature being interested in vistas because going back to the beginning of this conversation, when you asked me sort of the, the genesis of my own story around some of this stuff, the thing that happened when I was like, I I kept telling friends, like, I think I want to be either an astronaut or a whale photographer. (laughs) And once again, I was utterly serious. I was completely serious about both options. And my friend Caroline at the time was like, Brandy, what is the connection between those two things? Like, what do you think actually like speaks to both of those that you're trying to get at? And my response continued to be, it's like, they're both just things where 
I can like stand at a distance and it's so big that I'm immediately physically put into a sensation of feeling how small I am, which is a description of the physical experience of awe. And so when I think about being an astronaut and looking back at earth or like looking over at Jupiter or something, or being in the water, which is in a completely different, like, you know, universe and being next to a whale, which I have to say, I actually got to do for my 40th birthday. I got to swim in the water directly with whales. And it was a, just as incredible as I expected. And if not more, I'm sure. But both of those are just like, yeah, the sensation of awe of, um, and that's, that's really all I was looking for. It was like, and it makes sense because like you said, I was, I had just started this journey of trying to fall back in love with the world. And what better way to do that than to put yourself into a state of awe. So yeah, that, that became a sensation that I was seeking out. And I, for whatever reason, like it was like my body knew I needed it. Like I needed awe in order to get back to that sense of love with the world. And then, yeah, I think I'm, I'm only going to be able to paraphrase it. I think very poorly, but Andreas Weber toward the beginning of matter and desire is describing being in Italy at some point and just watching the swallows, like these birds fly around in the air and that like, it was almost like at dusk, they were just flying for the pleasure of flying. And he has this line that's really beautiful. I wish I could remember the whole thing, but it's something like they trusted in the air's capacity to carry them, which again is speaking to trust, right? That they have like, like they know that they will float on the air and the air to me is God like that, like whatever the like intangible mystical sacred thing is at the heart of everything that we can't see. Maybe it's dark matter and that's why we can't find it. You know, like, I don't know, but yeah, I think that's really beautiful. But yeah, the, the vistas thing is really, it makes a lot of sense. It's a, not just humans, but all of nature is really inspired by awe. Now, I guess I should tell my. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard. It's hard because I'm at, I'm at that point where there are all of these different little tendrils and I want to hold all of them. And, and so I think, well, I'll go where you want me to go. Well, no, I want you to be able to share your story too. I think that's one of the most important things here. And what I, one of the things, one of the things I wrote down while you were talking that I didn't want to lose, which I try not to do too much of is this idea that at the beginning you talked about this, this chart, this picture of all of your idea, all the things that interest you and that at the heart of all of them was that they're all a, a way to make meaning and a way of making meaning. And I think that what you do so beautifully, and I know one of the things that I love about the medium that is podcasting is that we're able to make meaning through storytelling, which I think is how we as humans receive meaning. I I think that it is the package that meaning uh, goes in uh, that we are then gifted. And so I think in that respect, I think all of this talk of faith, I think that there is meaning in how you arrived there because it's your story. Yeah. Yeah, That's why I, you know, part of this journey too was, um, in 2019, uh, right before the pandemic, it was November, 2019. I went to 
Southern California to attend a science communication conference. Cause I was like, I don't know what comes next. I just know I'm interested in science and I know I like talking about it. And by the way, I wound up at that conference. And one of the things I wanted to make sure to pull back in was I ran into someone and I was like, I don't know, all my math and science grades were really terrible. I think I was just really terrible at those things my whole life. And she was like, you weren't terrible. Your teachers were. And I was like, whoa, what? Yes. <laughs> She's like, yeah, anyone yeah, has your the capacity were. to do those things. You just didn't have teacher. And to, to be fair, I mean, my biology teacher, the like only class I ever got a C in literally recorded sessions and then sat in the back of the classroom while he played them to the class in order to teach. I'm like, that's not aliveness. That's dead. That's a dead biology. <laughs> but it's also, and I have, th- cause this really came up for me when you were talking about our relationship with matter. If, if the matter around us is alive and informing our experience of aliveness, and you talked about prisons, what does that say about schools? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many, I think there's so many connections there. Um, yes. Again, another fractal we could go down. I, the, (laughs) the other thing I was going to say, I think is, yeah, making meaning and storytelling. It's at that conference, the science communication conference. I attended a session by a woman, Nadia Drake, I think is her name. Brilliant. She's a writer. I think she does a bunch of like writing for National Geographic and such. And like in teaching that course um, or that session, you know, it was basically the entire gist was take the universal and make it specific. So every time, like we're talking esoterically and when it gets really like human and translates well to other humans is when someone actually tells their specific story because the specific then, of course, then in the inverse speaks to the universal. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I could tell lifetimes of the story. I'm going to try to do it as briefly as possible, but I grew up in the South in Dallas, in Texas. And I was not like, I guess in my childhood, my parents, like my, I had a stepmother who sort of had grown up in Louisiana and inside of like sort of Cajun Catholicism. So she had a lot of Catholicism in her past, but was not practicing it any longer for various reasons. And my father came from parents who like attended church, but seemed sort of like the, I don't know. I actually never, like my grandparents were old enough that I could never really access these stories, but my take on it was sort of like, that is just sort of what you did. Like, I mean, that's not too old, like altogether that different than what I think a lot of culture did around religion, at least when I was in high school. But regardless, it it seemed sort of like the appropriate, proper thing to do. I don't actually know what their own spiritual beliefs were, but my dad didn't really practice when I was a child either. We went to some like, I feel like Presbyterian or maybe Baptist sort of sermons every once in a while, but like we're never in church really. And my mom and like our family, because of her Catholicism for at least a period of my childhood, we would go to um, like Catholic mass on Easter and Christmas. But that was literally the height of the religion in my childhood, other than the fact that I lived in the South, which was culturally religious, right? So I adopted all of these particular views, views of the world. And though I didn't, I, I remember in middle school, genuinely not knowing who the hell Jesus was. I had no idea. Like I didn't actually understand that story, but it wasn't until, or so it wasn't until high school, the sort of more, more personal thing is like my stepmother battled alcoholism and life at home was pretty tough. And I was an only child. And so by the time I was in mid high school, I was just, I wasn't great. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Life looked pretty fucking dark. And 
I wasn't really sure I wanted to be here, but I think my sort of pervasive feeling every time I encounter that sensation is, but I know there's more life. Like I, like there's something else I'm just missing basically. Like I don't want to die. And so there was something in me that was still fighting for life. And at about that time, I met some other high school friends or people who became friends who were going to like a youth group. And so I started like, it was just like, yeah, maybe it's like the John Philip Newell thing where like in order to recognize truth, you have to actually have it somewhere innately inside of you. And it was like an uncovering of something that was already in me. And so when I saw it, I was just like, there's something here. And the way I describe it anytime someone asked me is that it was like it filled a hole I didn't know existed. But when it did, I I could tangibly feel the difference in who I was. But I met these, I met these folks who were attending like youth group. I started going to church. And genuinely, I remember not like maybe this describes how you and I have talked about how I approach health. Like you have such an extensive, deep knowledge about like the intricacies of health. And for me, my life has always been more like when I just feel it, I say, yes, like I, I can tell that there's something that's a truth there. And so, or it's, it's at least the next layer of truth that my body's ready for. Let's put it that way. And so I remember, yeah, just meeting these people. And I remember starting to go to youth group and I, I was not like, tell me all the dogma. Tell me what I'm supposed to believe. Tell me how this works. Tell me how I'm supposed to behave. I was just like, let's get in the water. We're getting baptized. I don't like, I don't, I just remember being like, I'm in, I just, I don't really care about the rest. We'll figure out the rest. Cause my experience of it did all the speaking. It's like, you know, listening to your podcast with Carrie Bennett, where like, I start actually aligning myself more with the nature or like the cycles of the sun. And all of a sudden my body has more energy than I've ever felt. Like I didn't need the science behind it. I just needed to experience what it felt like to be alive (laughs) again. And so something was telling me I was more alive or I felt more alive. And so I started going to church And then I learned all the dogma. I learned scientific religion, right? I learned all the ways I'm supposed to behave, all the way, all the things I'm supposed to think. But because I had grown up outside of church, I still had all of these different people around me. So I had people who were going to other kinds of church who were differently religious. I had people who would have called themselves like secular atheists. Like, and so I was already holding all of those things in tension at the time and didn't feel like whatever I was buying into, whatever decision I was making for one particular religion didn't mean that all my other friends were wrong. I just, I started to practice through this one particular portal and I eventually went to a faith-based undergrad school. Cause I was like, I just want like, whatever this is, I want more of it. And it turns out the, a, a larger institution is just more institutionalized. And I hated the experience of the practices of the university. I loved the experience of being in relationship with people who were there. So, or, you know, my friends and not the people who were making the rules basically. And so I go through this whole college experience, but I come out the other side and I'm like, oh, that was actually quite different than my high school experience of youth group. That was much more of the dogmatic like religion that I now realize is more, you know, I realized is just more like in line with cultural Christianity today. And then, so then I, I moved to Colorado, not, um, sort of in the middle of college. Um, and then permanently, once I graduate, I date a youth pastor. I'm like, I am in the bell jar. <laughs> it's like, what's that phrase? Uh, it's from reality bites, um, from 
Sylvia Plath, but like I'm, I was in the belly, I was in it so deep. I was in the belly of the whale or whatever, you know? And, but still, because I still had all of these other relationships and connections, I was still holding the, the nuance around everything. But, uh, I went through a breakup with that pastor when I was around 24 and then eventually took some sort of like life-changing trip to Rwanda, uh, which is not about what you think it is. Um, for everyone else who was there, it was much about changing everyone's beliefs about Jesus. And mine was like, I literally remember landing in Rwanda and getting in a taxi to drive to where we were staying. And my first thought was like, I was just seeing everyone in the street. And my first thought genuinely like louder than like me saying it, I just heard like, God's already here. Like, what on earth do you think you're bringing here that doesn't already exist? And so maybe, again, it's that sort of, like, John Philip Newell. Like, you're just, maybe you're there to help uncover what has been hidden. But anyway, regardless, I was not there to convert people personally. But was on this trip, and it was very life-changing. And I came back, and not, like, not much later... Uh, I don't remember. It's, uh, of course, like, a much more winding path. But around 27, I end up realizing that I'm attracted to women and probably have been for a really long time. And then all of a sudden, my faith is in direct contention with what I've been told about sexuality and gender. And so, well, gender is a whole other thing, but for sure around like that particular subject around sexuality. And so I started to have to come out to people who I had loved and been in relationship with who were deep, deep, deep in Christianity And thankfully I was old enough at that time when I came out, most people by that time were sort of people who could jive with it no matter what they believed. And, um, but there were a few particular people who were like, I think this is a sin. I like God doesn't approve. And so I had to go through a little bit of that. And then it was like a whole set of other circumstances basically led to me ejecting myself out of religion for about 10 years. And I often say to people, like, if you were, I was going through this permaculture course once where they did this thing where they were like, tell us like what you want to be asked. Like, what would be the one question you wish someone would ask you that you feel like you can't ever speak to? And I was like, I don't know, like this in here, like the, like there's like God, I don't know how to say, you know, like, I was just like, ask me about religion because it's, um, or spirituality. Cause it, it, none, even though I was outside of the church for 10 years, I'm still outside of the church, but in terms of like actual practicing religion of that particular kind, I always felt like there was, it never left me that there was something sacred behind the universe. I just, I felt like there was something off about how it was being practiced in real life. And I love, I'm again, going to butcher a quote, but there's something like, um, Abby Wambach and, um, Glennon Doyle. Glennon said something to her that I think she wrote in her book called untamed. That's this experience of sitting with Abby in a, a church office with a pastor or something. And Abby having a moment where she's just talking about her story of leaving the church and Glennon being like, you did not make a choice to leave the church and God. You made a choice to like, basically like find you and God, like you weren't, you weren't leaving God, you were leaving the church and there's a real distinct difference. And so that's how it felt for me. And I think where I'm at today is I sort of went on a several year journey of like what required sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater in a lot of ways in terms of like the practice of religion, but again, never really losing the sort of spirituality under that 
But now coming to this place where I'm able to, I think mostly I feel a loss of tradition and it's not, it's not regular Christianity. Like I, it's still not that, but it's a grounding in a decision. Uh, like when you actually cut like a commitment, like when you make a commitment to your husband or something, you are cutting yourself off from all other options, but in it, there's a groundedness and, you know, Esther Perel basically said like, in, in order for the erotic to survive, like you also have to have a sense of security. And so there is the sort of other part of it for me that feels like I'm just sort of wishy-washy, you know, like I've sort of picked and chosen all of these sort of like alternate spiritualities around like tarot or astrology or spiral dynamics. It doesn't really like whatever you can call a, you know, a spirituality, but it just didn't feel like intimacy. It felt like I was cherry pick, you know, it's like, what's a good nature or like you and I talk about, you know, like it's, I had to be in intimacy and, and I just realized that it required choosing a tradition. And for me, choosing anything other than Christianity felt like an appropriation, especially as a white person. Like I was going to, you know, like yoga is a type of appropriation. Like it's just, it's not my culture, just not. And so it's not to say that accessing any of those things isn't real or true or that we don't experience a real profound connection to the truth behind the universe and the sacredness there in practicing those things. But as a white person, it's particularly important to me, I think, to sort of reclaim what comes from my own past and probably also like looking in my ancestry is somewhere at least has to do with the British Isles. Like, I don't know if it's Ireland particularly or Scotland, but I do know that it's um, some of my past ancestry is around there. And when I, you know, in terms of talking about storytelling, part of the reason why appropriation matters is because I have all of the context around these things because I grew up in Christianity. I know how to speak to these things so profoundly because I have a direct experience of it. And so there's something to me in a homecoming of like reclaiming a tradition in a way that is not the same, but still grounded in ancient spiritual practices that speaks to me and is also part of my own history that therefore when I then tell this story to you and to everyone who's listening and every other time I get asked about it is so much more compelling and interesting because I actually have all of the context around everything to be able to tell you why it's important or why it matters or all of the nuance around all of the practices. And I think John Philip Newell and some other, I think, spiritual teachers for me are helping me, or even if it's just like within herbalism, like St. Bridget is a like classic figure in herbalism that's an Irish, like she's a classic Irish saint, basically. And so, yeah, I don't know. It just, it matters more. And I think it's more profound when I go like, you've been told, it's almost like, oh, oh my God, I'm about to pull out something. I, it's like you and the Bobcats cat. I'm like, I can't believe I'm about to say this because <laughs> I still struggle with talking about Christianity because without all of the context, I feel scared that people hear it in a particular way. And I'm like, no, that's not actually what I mean, bro. <laughs> like, I mean all these other things, but there's this line I've always loved in Acts. Um, it's a book in the Bible in the New Testament where Paul comes into like this sort of, this sort of city center and there's a monument that just has a plaque on it that says to an unknown God. And he walks into the city center and he's like, what you once felt was unknown. Let me help you know, basically like, let me do that pointing. I'm going to point to the thing like of, of what you've been trying to get at with your storytelling and, and tell you who this God is. And I think 
when I say that story now, even it's so much more profound than if I had cherry picked from another religion that I just don't actually really connect to. And so it's fun to me to think like, I don't know. It's like, it's like the silly feeling of like making Christianity more badass or reclaiming how badass it was to beginning, um, in the beginning, like much more ancient practices to go like, we forgot and now it's time to remember. And so I think, yeah, this practice of helping myself remember all of these truths that seem really real to me and alive to me, but in an entirely different way that I've been able to like reintegrate altogether. That was so long, Kate. I think that's the end. I was, I, I was I fascinated. It. I was fascinated throughout that entire discussion of your history with this because we have very different experiences and, and views on this, I think, in a lot of ways. And I think, hmm, I think homecoming is such a radical act, no matter how you frame it. And I was thinking, are you familiar with Wes Jackson's take on homecoming within agricultural communities? Wes Jackson is the Kernza guy, isn't he? He is. He's the Land Institute guy, but he also <laughs> yeah, wrote, um, he wrote one of my favorite books, which is Consulting the Genius of the Place. And this is one of my favorite ecology, uh, Wendell Berry. He's a good friend of Wendell Berry's and a lot of that comes out in his writing. But in his idea of homecoming as applied to agriculture, you have, you have these farms. And these kids grow up on these farms and then they, they go to see the world. They go out to college and to study other things. And that it used to be that they would then come home to the farm. And that no longer is the case. The mass exodus from rural communities into urban city centers has really been this this act of not coming home. And so what does it mean in this day and age to come home to farming? And I think as you were talking about coming home to the cultural religion that is a part of your, your cultural and ethnic background, like that is an act of, of homecoming. And that's just what it brought up for me. And I think in, you know, all the ways that, oh, I think about this a lot, right? I think about all of the ways in which we are wired for belief and for faith. And I've talked about this on the podcast before, uh, through the lens of Lisa Miller's The Awakened Brain, that there there is a space within our brains that is looking for belief in something. Right. And, and it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to have right, specificity. It's profoundly human. It is profoundly human. And I think in that sense, for my own journey, I've been led back to this idea of con- connectivity that that is, that that is God of my understanding and is unknowable in a lot of ways, as you were talking about that, that passage from Acts. I couldn't help but I like that, that sort of unknown God that is the space between things, right? The, the, yeah, it's a, it's a both and for dark me. matter. Right. It's yeah, mystery. It's a both and. Yeah, because when mystery. you said that, that, yeah, it's mystery. It's the something, it's the, universal it's the and magic the that exists. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I also find a lot of, problem inside of, uh, coming into a culture and telling it, like, let me tell you what this God is. I, you know, like there's, there's a lot of complexity around that also. And I think 
Yeah. Again, it's hard. Cause yeah. Telling the story. I don't, I don't know how to tell it yet with all of the, all of the tendrils in a way that like, because when I say even appropriation, I like, I love Char- part of Charles's work that doesn't, I don't think get really talked about that much. He has a portion in uh, sacred economics where he talks about like the boundaries that we place around all ideas, basically like this is mine and that's yours. Like that is a form of separation also. And so I have complex feelings around the idea of appropriation as well, that like, does something belong to you and doesn't belong to me? Like how is corn more or less somewhat, you know, how does um, nature belong to any one particular person? And so, um, I have that complexity too. And then like a guy I follow Rob Bell, like I've always loved, he he's always like atheism and Christianity are basically two sides of the same coin. Like they're both a faith in something. Like you yes. believe that something doesn't exist or you believe that something does exist. So they're all a faith. And to me, I think that's why talking about aliveness is an accessible way to talk about the sacredness of all things, the energy behind all matter, the life that, I mean, in Chinese medicine, the life that flows through all things and stopping flow is when cancer and all these other things happen, right? We're all, that's what I love about John Philip Newell's the like, I don't think that religions are here to compete with each other. I think they're here to complete each other. They're all just, yeah, like I said, just sort of standing around being like, whoa, look at that thing. Um, (laughs) Like I see it through my lens and you see it through yours, but at the end of the day, we're all pointing at the same mountain basically. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not even, I I don't even know what I'm pointing at. I think I'm just still in the phase of awe and trying to embody that and trying to reach into that in my daily life to better access whatever, whatever that next level of connectivity is for myself. Yeah. Mm. And I, there's, I just, yeah. There's another piece I wrote called land plus love. It was one of the earlier pieces I've written and it, there's this part at the beginning that talks about love and how it's like an indefinable thing, basically that, um, and this was sort of spurred on by my friend at the time, Sigri, who was doing a project where she asked me to write something. And the project was in, um, I think it was indefinable love or something like that, but basically talking about how like the same sort of story or sensation that like, when we talk about love, we talk about, it's like the only way we can describe it is by going like, I don't know. It was like that like elderly woman holding the hand of her husband while she passed away. It was like that wild moment I had with a raccoon on the trail six days ago, you know, like it was a coyote I saw eating a bird the other day, you know, like like we have to describe it in metaphor because there's no, it's again, it's that like, you can't touch it. Like the best we can do is use metaphor to get close to it. And I, again, I think that's what religion is, is like, it's, we are using stories. We're using metaphor to get close to a thing that like, and I think why we're sort of talking about how, like, there's more of us who are trying to do that pointing is that, yeah, it's like, there's all this shit, right? There's all this shit that we've been told about, like what to believe, how to believe it, et cetera, et cetera. That's in religion. It's in science. It's in literally everything. But behind all of that, in our ex- lived experience of being in the world, knows some stuff to be true. Like I cannot define synchronicities. I cannot tell you exactly how synchronicities happen in the world. I cannot tell you how you and I met. I can't tell you how dark matter works, you know, like, um, I, I can't get at any of that, but 
nonetheless, in my lived experience of being human, I know it's true. And it's why a lot of religion doesn't, or at least didn't work for a lot of people for a really long time, because inside of religion, you get told a bunch of things and then you start to go, hold on a second. My experience of the world tells me otherwise. And so in order to keep believing this one thing, you're asking me to distrust my own experience. And so thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people have defected from religion because at some point the container was too rigid to hold their actual lived experience. And at some point, again, I think that's the like all trend, all life trends toward more life. It's why I, I have a deep belief that honesty comes out no matter how hard you fight against it. So like a, a lie or a secret will always uncover itself. And I think that's I part of all life trends toward more life because anything that's like shoving down a, a, our own truth. And part of that truth, when you're in religion and being asked to believe something that is counter to your experience of the world, eventually that will break because you will always choose, or most people will choose. Let's say many people will choose. (laughs) Um, Some people will choose their own truth. They will choose their own truth because it takes so much effort to hold a dam around water that wants to break through it. And having to do that so consistently becomes literally sickness, you know, that it, it makes you sick to have to deny your own lived experience. And so I think similarly, no matter what religion we're coming from, and again, like religion can be astrology. It can be all kinds of other things. It could be how you do your morning walk. Like we can make <laughs> your morning walk. We talked about this in my podcast. We can make that into a religion, you know? Um, yeah. But I- I was in a, an adult children of alcoholics meeting, um, an ACA meeting and, and somebody referred to his religion was a doorknob because that was, that was the thing that always allowed him to exit and enter situations either that he did or didn't want to be in. And, and so it really, uh, and, and it struck me and it's, it stuck with me. And I think, you touched on something that is on the landing page of the this plus that podcast website, which is we with something around cutting off pieces of yourself in order to belong. And I think oftentimes these institutions, these containers, right? These rigid containers ask of us to contort and to cut off pieces in order to be able to fit within that space. And it's not just religion. I think there are a lot of institutional spaces and in even just, even just in groups, specific in groups. Uh, and I think this can get as, as specific as dietary dogma often asks of us to cut off pieces of yourself in order to belong and, and are we always trending towards wholeness because that is where aliveness lives. And, and so we are the, we are the nematode, the, the, what is it? A salamander whose tail has fallen off and is growing back. Like we cut off our own tail, but then we realize it and we can't help but grow beyond the limitations of that container. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, again, it's, it's all in the same and we're circling back to the beginning again. Right. It's the, yeah, my story, my story is really a lot of that, like having to cut off pieces of who I am in order to belong. And that's what I mean. I think in joking sort of about like, you know, some people being willing to sort of break through that mold is that 
it is so much easier in one way to live a half-life, to not explore these deeper questions, to go along with whatever you've been told. It's so much easier to fit into the tribal mentality. You know, it's fucking difficult to go like, hold on, you guys, I have a question and to brace yourself for the response when you ask hard things. And so it's, I don't, I think I've said this before in something like, I don't fault people for continuing to choose that. But I think again, all life wants more life. And in order to survive in any one particular tribal mentality, you have to cut off pieces of who you are in order to stay there. And if you are interested in not living a half-life, you have to do the hard work of coming home to yourself and asking yourself all of those hard questions and, you know, holding complexity and paradox and all of those things. Like, and it's, you know, I, I keep coming back to this. I've, uh, it's happened a few times in the podcast, but it's why one particular thing I love about, you know, learning in religion is that apparently the original etymology or whatever the case may be of the word sin is just separation. And if the root of all disease and sickness and conflict and all of these things is actually just separation, then, and, and that it makes sense because if the nature of the universe is wholeness, like if, if the, if the universe wants us to be whole, then separation is what makes us sick. So here we are again. Have you ever heard <laughs> Zach Bush talk about how cancer is, is made manifest at a cellular level? Have we talked about this before? You, I, well, listening back to our meat plus health conversation, you said something, but, um, go into it. Cause I want your people to hear. I'm going to butcher this a little bit, and my biology isn't going to be spot on, but when cancer metastasizes within the body, what initially happens is a single cell that has that has something wrong with it suddenly cannot communicate with other cells yeah, outside of you itself. Yeah. And so it happens within isolation. And then suddenly that lack of communication begins to spread to all of these other neighboring cells. And, and this is the nature of the metastasis of cancer. And when you said sin is to, to separate, right? Like the, Etymology it's a separation is separate. from God, from yourself. Yeah. And I think that that speaks so much to what ails society, to the manifestation of illness in our, in our bodies, to getting back to this idea of holding complexity and nuance when you get to the point in the spiral that I don't yet know enough to talk about, to, to be in that space and to come back to intimacy, to close to seeking that as close as matter can get connection. Yeah. Yeah. I was, when I was listening back to our meat plus health podcast on my show this morning, I got to that point toward the end of the conversation. So if, if you're listening, you have to listen at least a couple hours into my, uh, that episode with Kate, but <laughs> There's a, there's a point where you bring that up. And I like, I probably nearly hit the table. Cause I had the same moment where I was like, holy shit, even cancer is literally an inability to communicate between each other and a separation therefore of one or like one piece of an organism from another piece of the organism. And I was like, this again, like, this is blowing my mind right. Though, Cause I mentioned it earlier that like, I think it says something about 
I'm like, this is how I think spirituality is proving science and vice versa, because I'm listening to all these stories about people experiencing psychedelics. And again, in that experience, what I have heard so many stories about people being like, I took psilocybin and it cured my cancer. I took MDMA and I was just like connected to everybody and everything felt like love and whatever. And then all of a sudden my sickness was gone. And I'm like, who feels fucking surprised that when you take a drug that actually connects you profoundly, like basically opens a veil, like between us and the nature of the universe being paradox and love and mystery and beauty and all of these things. Like when you have that experience, do you know what it does? It reintegrates the cells in your body and your body and helps them communicate again. And it gets rid of your cancer. Like what the fuck separation is the thing is it's actually literally making us all sick. That's it. Like I'll go tell all the doctors. (laughs) (laughs) You can stop what you're doing. The root of all sickness is separation. Uh, I think it's so true. I mean, because this podcast In my own experience of sickness, like chronic illness, like we've talked about, I think, you know, and doing all of this, like chasing down of external resources of what could heal me. I got to a place where the ultimate store, the ultimate thing I realized in in doing all of this illness work was what if I'm just outsourcing all of my power to everybody else? And what really is true is that healing lives within sight of me. And all that is Kate is reconnection to myself. Like it's actually a stop, like ceasing a separation between me and what truth and healing actually is. And that really to solve all of my sicknesses, like basically, you know, I know that there's a lot of complicated, uh, feelings about these things, but that like, at least in my own experience, it started to feel so true that all of the physical manifestations of illness that I was experiencing at their root were actually spiritual misalignments and separation between myself and other people and the truth of the universe. That in some level, at some level, I believed, again, I wasn't safe, which means I don't think that the universe has my back, which means that I am separate from the idea that all, all life is love and all of the universe operates on the gift. Like me being separated from that idea makes me sick because I feel unsafe. Me thinking that I'm separate from other people makes me sick. And yeah, it's why, like, again, like the idea of like limited beliefs, like, I mean, it sounds very woo, but it's like, if you actually, like, if the core of that is actually just you learning how to realize that you're not separate from everyone and everything else. And also reintegrating your own self back home into your own body. Then yeah, I, I, I just feel like that's where all of our sickness literally comes from spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, and that the work then becomes remembering at the cheesiest level that all life is love, which again, is just a woo way of saying all life is sacred. Your life is sacred. You are not separate. You belong like and I think if we're going to talk about religion, like it, the, the health of religion is to say, like, grab you by the shoulders and be like, there's nothing you have to do. You belong already. The fact that you exist means that you belong, that you are whole, that you are already integrated into the fabric of all things. What are you even doing? Please stop. Like, it's just a remembering of that, a, a, a memory of that. Religion that doesn't do that is way off course. 
I'm just giving space for what you said and, and how beautifully you said it and, and how, again, I'm just in awe of, of your ability to articulate things that are so close to my own heart. And I know that this act of healing for me in this chronic illness journey has been coming home to connection, both within myself and within my environment. And it's not easy. I, and I think, you know, and I, I know we both know this and I wanted to talk to you some about purpose and illness, which was, I just, that podcast and the one that, that led up to it were really important to me about how sickness is a reflection of, of what's happening within our society and, and how much purpose can be found in illness. And I think within that context, so much of my purpose as I've reached the most healed I've felt in my life, and that includes in childhood right now, has been through making so many more connections. And I know that, and, and this sounds so silly, but doing this podcast, which had been in my heart and in my mind and haunting me for the last five years, opened up a new level of healing for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, part of what I talk about in those episodes is that a kind of separation is ignoring that message that's haunting you. I think a lot of us are walking around with something in us that's going like, hey, like, hey, there's something here. And again, that's, if cancer is stopping communication, if in Chinese medicine it is cutting off flow, then that's what we are doing when we ignore the messages that are happening in our body that tell us maybe not our lifelong purpose, but whatever that next step is, that's just tapping on your shoulder until, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, part of what I talk about in those two episodes is I think that those, that separation manifests physically also. So when you are in work that doesn't mean anything to you and you're just there mostly like a lot of us are no shame. It's what we've learned. It's what works. It is how it is. But when you're in a job, you don't care about, you don't find a lot of meaning in it. And you have this thing that's just haunting you. Like I always felt like I was supposed to paint or, you know what? I've always wanted to learn how to weave, I don't know, or butcher. The more you ignore those, I actually think that they become physical manifestations because you have cut off flow. You have stopped communication with your own self. And so, yeah, I think a part of my deep purpose is that message that we are all imbued innately with a gift to give or gifts to give other people. And when we don't, it kills us and it kills other people because they're not receiving it. And so it's literally keeping gifts from a world that needs it. And one of the things I, I hope I can remember it because I think it's one of the more powerful pieces, but there's a quote I found in a meme somewhere that's like, why would we have children in a time when there are dragons to, um, when there are so many dragons and like the wife responds with something that's like, because we're birthing dragon slayers basically. And I think all of us have dragons to slay. And ultimately all I think we're doing when we actually listen to that is our own form of how you preach about purpose or how you bre actually more accurately, how you preach about wholeness. Like all we're all doing, I think in our purpose work at its core is speaking to each other about wholeness 
pointing to the thing that goes, you're whole. Like I might do it through writing and speaking. You might do it through the podcast. Josh might do it through raising the pigs or whatever. But like at the end of the day, like when I think that that there's like this built in human message that in your own particular way, like whatever diagram you would draw on a sheet of paper that had all of the things that you were interested in is really at its core, the way that you are here to heal separation in the world and to speak to wholeness. And so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, the sort of inverse of that is that not doing what you're here to do makes you sick. And so like we've been talking about until you start actually doing your podcast, you will never actually heal. And, and I think we create projects for ourselves that are the next container for our next layer of healing. I agree. And I think we avoid them as ferociously as we create them. And, so hard. And that, that I think about, um, uh, Stephen Pressfield's, uh, the war of art. Yep. Have you, have you? Yeah. Oh yeah. That this great resistance arises in us to reach that next level of wholeness, that next level of healing, or to, to reach out and take the next step on the journey towards purpose. And I know that I've experienced so much resistance and avoidance in my lifetime of the things that were constantly tap, tap, tapping on my shoulder. And that it's been in taking those really terrifying steps towards that, that we find a sense of healing and trust. And, oh, I have, I have to, this is a quote from you. Interestingly, too, I am realizing that in order to really encounter a felt sense of grief over devoting your time and energy towards things that do not bring you and others more life, you must be uncomfortably but fascinatingly connected to yourself and agonizingly willing to take responsibility for your choices. And that, I mean, for me to come home to this podcast has meant taking agonizing responsibility for the ways in which... I avoided this and to grieve time that I lost time back. to Yeah. That. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, so everyone knows, I mean, outside of these incredible conversations we're having in our own work, you are basically uh, health coaching me <laughs> and yeah, most of that. And also what I've been going through and sort of conflict with friends is everybody just looking at me and being like, Brandy, your life is your own. Take fucking responsibility. Like, like sort of just more and more and more layers of letting go of victimhood. And I know that still pops up for me everywhere. I mean, even the other day you wrote, you asked everybody about how to heal your hip issue. And I was like, I don't know, that's where trauma lives. And I was like, oh, that's, it's still, I don't know. There, it, it it's is. there everywhere. And, but and- like, <laughs> it's true. And, um, and, and I'm ready we have to something be to do. out. I'm ready to yeah. shift out of that. Yeah. And so I think for me, again, like most of my health work is actually just in another lens uh, or language of saying it is about like homecoming is in, in healing that separation is about taking 
deep responsibility for your choices. And I think that's why it's so, it is an act of intimacy building to get closer to where your food comes from, to figure out where it comes from, to butcher your own food, to raise your own food, to slaughter your own food. Like those are deep choices around self fucking accountability because the way that our culture is structured is separation. I am so like most people are so far removed from the food that they eat that there is zero responsibility taking for the impact of everything that happens between soil and mouth basically. And so, yeah, it's a, it's cultural. It's at a personal level about an uncomfortable, truly, I have to say again, a completely uncomfortable level of self self accountability where I go like every day, every action is my own choice. It's my own choice. It's my own life. I can no longer give my life away to other people and to just sort of flit about in the wind when people tell me I should or shouldn't do something and to stand in my own integrity in a way. It's (laughs) fucking terrible. I hate it. It would be so much easier if life were... I hate it too. I mean, have you ever, I, I don't know if you're a TV person given what you do in the world, but there's a TV show called Fleabag. And um, I want to, I hope that there's oh, a clip Fleabag. of this particular scene I'm also, I'm a person in the world that loves good storytelling. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the second season of Fleabag, the, the first season is like give or take, but the second season is probably, I think, the most perfect, I don't know about movie or media, because Arrival, of course, but at least the most perfect TV show written from beginning the first word to the last word. It is utter perfection to me. And there's a scene in that that I think is the most vulnerable and therefore the most powerful. She is in a confessional with the priest, the guy that she's attracted to, and it's, she's drinking inside of the confessional. And she just says, just fucking tell me what to do. I'm so scared. I wake up every day, not knowing what to do. Like, tell me what to wear. Tell me, like what to eat. Just tell me how to fucking be in the world. And it's so, it is one of, I think the most human moments I've ever seen in media because it's so true. It's, that's why it's so uncomfortable. It's painful. It's difficult. You have to encounter and hold paradox. You have to question everything that you do. And it would be so much fucking easier just to like wake up every day and be like, I don't know, I start it and I end it and I don't really know what happens in between, but I didn't really have to think too much about it. So thank God, you know, but again, it's, it's a form of separation from yourself and from aliveness and everything else. And I think a lot of people choose that and yeah, they like choose I said, it I don't fault. for reasons that I entirely understand. Yeah. I entirely that, that understand it. Yeah. I, I mean, there've been times in my life where I have chosen that, but the, the more you lift that veil of separation and the more you see that you are responsible and you are left with the unimaginable weight of that responsibility, the more that it begins to shift the way that you choose for yourself and the way that you choose in relationship with others to show up and to try and to transcend that victim consciousness, which I am always, this is, I mean, and this is, this has been a lot of work for me as, as someone who grew up in, you know, and I, we share this as only children that grew up in a household with alcoholics. I just, I carry, I carry, carry a piece of me, right. That is, victim to that. 
and that had that 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 relationship has patterned so much of the way that I exist in the world and it is my choice to leave that pattern not yeah, that it's and- an easy one or- <laughs> No, (laughs) we are both very familiar with how hard that is. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, very briefly, because I don't think we have to really go into it, but the sort of nature of what allows someone to continue struggling with alcoholism is to refuse accountability. Like, it's not a problem. It's not a problem. I don't have a problem is the sort of common theme within that. But I was going to say earlier, you know, sort of speaking about homecoming, like, I mean... (laughs) funnily enough, like talking about storytelling, like you're telling the hero's journey, which is like, you've gone out on this journey to go through a trial. And if you don't come home with a nugget of wisdom, you're robbing everybody from like, in you know, in that essay that I wrote that you just quoted from the like, you know, sort of painful accountability. It's a story about throwing a chicken away. (laughs) And it's just sort of a like a realization about all of the aliveness that had to go into that chicken winding up in my hands. So like when you, when you come back from a hero's journey, it's not just a robbery of the nugget of wisdom, the golden elixir or whatever you're supposed to bring back to your community. It's that like, fuck you. Like we, do you know how much energy and life and effort were required for you to go out on that journey from everybody else. Someone had to build the ship. Someone had to like be at home while you were gone to tend to the house while you weren't taking care of it. Someone like, there's just so much interconnection around that, that like is missing from the story of the hero's journey, which is like in order for anyone to go on that requires an entire network of relationship. And so it's not just a waste of what you've learned. It's that you've robbed everyone else around you of the aliveness and the energy they gave to support you on that journey. And so, yeah, I think it's a, it's sort of a shame to live your life in a job that you don't love when just the absurd amount of resources that it requires for a human to be alive is like all the other life we have to eat, your parents birthing you, the things that had to die in them in order to raise children instead of doing all the other things that they wanted to do, like just a mass of death that had to happen in order for your life to exist. And you're going to sit in a fucking chair doing shit you don't care about and rob the world of the gift that you have. What a travesty. Like what an actual travesty. It's a waste. It's what waste is. And it's, um, it's not compost. It's not a good kind of waste. Like we'll take it back because the earth is good at taking back whatever it has and making it into something beautiful. But like, it's such an energetic waste of a life. Yeah. I think that's all I have on that. It's just, it's so upsetting and it's why it's so important. Yeah. To, to come to a place of self-accountability that you are responsible for the energy that you choose to use and that you're using of other people in order for your life to exist. You said it beautifully. And I think it is also a poignant reminder that we all have gifts that need to be shared. And this actually brings me to something I really wanted to talk about with you, which is this aspect of living in the gift that you have been on this journey. And and you said something earlier in this podcast that You know, when we're talking about sin as it applies to separation and our separation from giving our gifts to the world, but also to receiving the gifts of others, you gave me a gift this morning. And I've been offered gifts a couple of times in the last 
no, let's call it six weeks. And I have rejected all of them. And immediately when you, when you offered me the gift that you offered this morning, I instantly heard in my head, I am not worthy of that gift. And I created a thousand excuses for how I was going to, you know, elegantly, kindly reject that gift in favor of something else. And so when you talked about that, that there is this sin, this separation in even our reception of gifts and the giving of them, how do we return to living in the gift? And I did, I just, it cuts you off. And I just, I just sat and cried this morning after you sent that and was really, because I felt it, I saw it all the other gifts have been given in live time. And so there was, there was no time for me to sit and consider only enough time for me to be like, nope, to reject. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Only enough time for me to reject. And I saw it and I was sad and, and it brought me back to this, this beautiful idea of living in the gift that, that you have been experiencing. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry, now I'm sitting with hearing that back. Not sorry. But and thank you. Because you're that, so welcome. Yeah. that wasn't something, but thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard as people who want to practice reciprocity, right? Like, I mean, I think there's a, there is a shadow side of it that is cutting you off from the gift, but I think it's also as people maybe who are still practicing what it is to speak up for ourselves in the world and to to make sure that we're living in reciprocity because I don't know about you, but at least in my experience of living in an alcoholic household, there was a lot of like, um, all excuses made for whatever was happening in the house to the detriment of everyone else. So that one person could be witnessed, supported, seen, taken care of. And so as an adult, it's really difficult for me to navigate being like, Kate, I need this from you to feel like this is reciprocal or to feel like, I'm not just, I have a deep fear of being taken from, right? And if you have a deep fear of being taken from, I think you have a deep fear of receiving. And that's a problem to me in my own life. And so, yeah, a lot of this healing has been around, yeah, again, sort of that feeling of, or healing the, the belief that I'm separate from the world. Because when we look at nature, all of nature operates in the gift. And I said this recently on another interview that I thought was, I don't know where it came from, but I think was one of the more interesting things because in, in my conversation with Andreas, I asked him about purpose, like from a biological perspective, tell me if we have purpose. I want to know from someone who can tell me that's not just philosophical and pretty, (laughs) but like, I want to hear from science if we have purpose. And, but in this interview I was doing recently, I was like, you know, a, a bee serves profound purpose. But a bee, I don't think is floating around being like, oh my God, am I doing it right? (laughs) Like a bee is just existing and it might not like, it might only like, I'm not sure that a bee understands the purpose it serves for an individual flower, but I'm, I also doubt that a bee lives its existence. And when it dies, realizes that it has stupidly large impacts and ecological purpose in, in the entire system. Like the way that bees impact our food is basically indescribable. And so sometimes I think when we talk about purpose, we think about, and I know I'm going 
away from the gift, but I promise it's the same thing. <laughs> but like, I trust you. We tend to think about purpose as an individual's purpose. Like, do I serve an individual? What are the gifts I have to give? And I think that's true, but I think it's equally true that we probably serve a much larger ecological purpose. So gray wolves with bison, right? <laughs> Using the same sort of story from our own other conversation that, yeah, again, I don't think gray wolves are like, you know, what are we going to do today? I just don't even know. I'm just not even sure what they do is go, you know, what sounds delicious. I'm going to go eat a fucking bison. Like that's what they do. And so for humans, I think the same sort of inclination to go like this strawberry in season tastes better. This work brings me more alive. And that's why I love to like, every time I talk about aliveness, I talk about it as a tangible felt experience. Joy feels like it lives in my head. Aliveness feels like my body is like, yes, that like, I want more of that. It points me to exactly what would be delicious in my life. And so I chase that and a gray wolf generally, other than ecological collapse, I think trusts that the bison will be there when it wakes up in the morning to eat, or there will be something that will feed it and nourish it that day. And we spend so much fucking mental energy wondering what our purpose is when I think right in front of us is just an answer that says, what do you feel right now in your body seems delicious to you? What makes you go, oh my God, I love that so much. I can't stop doing it. And when you get into that space, you start trusting in the gift that all nature operates in this thing that we've been, we just as like we talk about in my episode with you, nutrient density, we've been given, we don't have to know the scientific nutrient makeup of a particular food. What I know is that it tastes good. <laughs> and I think we've been, imbu been imbued with a similar mechanism in our bodies that says, not only does this taste good when I'm doing it, yeah, it's just, it's delicious to do. I have a fun time doing it. I experience a lot of pleasure and who would have thought when I do it, I have more energy doing it than I would have done something else today. And so there is an element of the gift in there that goes, and it's why I gave you that gift this morning was because I was like this, like take all my money, genuinely take it. Like I could run out of money tomorrow. I don't care. I'm so glad that what I gave you exists in the world. I, I would rather that I, it just, you couldn't have stopped it. You know, it was just like, that was such a pleasure. I don't care if a single person listens to our, our episodes on my show. I don't care if it leaves me bankrupt. I am so full from having it that I genuinely don't care about anything else. And that, that to, that's a difference between gift and obligation. It's an obligation. Again, I think it's, I'm still navigating, navigating what it is to, to live in reciprocity. But, you know, Charles talks a lot about gift and reciprocity and that like, just like the gray wolf, like the gray wolf eats a bison, but it doesn't realize that like that triggers a whole other chain of events. And maybe the gift ends up somewhere else. Like the gift doesn't have to return to me directly. And it doesn't have to return to me directly in the same way that it was offered. Right. And so me giving you a gift, but knowing it's, you know, I'm going to put quotes around costing me more in whatever way it costs me because it's given out of gratitude and joy and aliveness. I believe that 
whether or not you ever quote unquote, pay me back a gift that other people will be, will experience the gift that it will be in existing in the world. And therefore when they feel it's a gift, they will want to gift back to either other people in doing work that matters to them, to learning more about what it is to be closer to their own food that will heal them in some way that will then allow them to do something else like their own purpose work or taking care of their child that night. Like there is a whole network of gift that happens that we so often don't see the return on, but the nature of the gift is knowing that when I give in that spirit, I will be taken care of and all of the appropriate needs that I have. And it doesn't always mean, and often doesn't mean that I have a certain amount in my bank account. It means that tomorrow someone gives me a chicken. The next day, someone offers me a massage. 10 years from now, someone gifts me $10,000 to write a book. You know, like, I don't know what that is, but, and, and you can't control it. There is no controlling in the gift but it is both a measure of extreme accountability and knowing that you have a choice to make and also exceptional gratitude that you've been given a life that has required so much energy and effort from other people that you are responsible for then gifting that forward to other people and then trusting that when you give something that is a true pleasure for you to do, that you will be taken care of and however you need to be taken care of in any given moment. And that's true because you're here. There's proof because you exist and you're standing behind a mic that costs money and you've got plants that are like probably, you know, cleaning your air and like all kinds of things, right? Like you, you exist here. And so you have been gifted a life and a lot of aliveness along the way. I think I, again, got a little poetic there and I'm not sure if I wrapped it up. I keep doing this. I'm doing it to myself. I have to keep, I have to stop doing that. No, it was perfect. Oh, stop just stop standing in my own truth and leaving it, was, it at a period. It was, yeah. And that's all it needs to be is a period. That was yeah. perfect. I, I have I have nothing more that I could add to it other than a profound sense of gratitude for you and the gifts that you put into the world through your words and what a gift, what medicine it has been throughout this podcast to hear whatever that was, right? I, I don't monologues, soliloquies, like what's whatever the name for, for that yeah, is where rants. you speeches, rants, preaching. All, yes. All of the above. Yeah. Yeah. It is a gift and it is a gift in what it awakens within me and what it calls for me to remember about what is true that I have absolutely forgotten in this instance and just yeah. very yeah. grateful. Thank you. I feel the same in return. It's of course why I offered it because yeah, it's just a, I don't know. It's, it's why, you know, I told you at some point when we were talking also in the, my episodes that, you know, like we feel so compelled to work and work and work and produce and produce and produce. And I have just become such a huge believer in the profound nature of when someone hears a single conversation that is so good that it can open up so many more doors than we could have ever expected. And so I'd rather have conversations with people who see life that way and get it. And then like 
you know what? I just got to produce another fucking podcast. I just got to like put out another thing. You know, I just got to put out more social media. I just got to do whatever the mystery, magic, sacred awe thing that happens when someone feels your connection to something is completely uncontrollable and will result in other gifts for them or for other people or for you in return. It's just, yeah, it's all part of living and gift that I just have this. I was like, I heard our episode and I was just like, I honestly don't care. <laughs> like, I don't care about anything. I need other people to hear this because yeah, it's, it's, um, keeping good news away from people. I think, I think this is good news. It's good news that you're whole. <laughs> yeah. It's good news that we're alive. It's good news that we're trending towards those things, even when we don't feel whole or alive. And, and that that aspect of humanity in us is also present here in the, in the telling of it to other people. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know. It's that feeling I'm sure you get when you're like slaughtering an animal or searing some steak or something, you know, that it's like, I'd rather be here than anywhere else. Like, I just, I would not do this any differently. And I think that's what I feel when I'm in these types of conversations. And I think, I hope it's what people hear when they listen to them. So like, I would just, why, why would I be doing anything else? I've had that feeling throughout this entire conversation. Yeah. So funny. Now I'm like tempted to go into this whole other, there's, I was listening, I think it was Carrie Bennett or Sarah Kleiner someone I was listening to on your podcast recently, I just had this, you know, I was thinking about circadian rhythm and it's funny to me. Again, we keep talking about the meaning and the impact of words like circadian rhythm is a rhythm, which means that if you were out of rhythm, you are in discordance. There's a discord that happens in your body. So when you talk about resonance, like the reason that we feel compelled to certain things is because it is it resonates literally it like, and again, science proving the mystical more every day that, that if all life is energy, then all life is a sound wave essentially. <laughs> and when you are out of resonance with the things that around are around you, it create, it is a type of separation that creates sickness. <sighs> and you can like, we have that same, like we have attunement in our ears and inner like body energies. Like we can tell when we are in resonance with something or when we are discordant with something. And so in indigenous or Chinese medicine, where they talk about the idea of uh, being in or out of alignment or in proper relationship or out of proper relationship or yeah, flow, like all of those things are kinds of like other ways of speaking to when we are out of resonance with the things around us and to be in more and more resonance with rhythm, like the natural rhythms of the universe is to come into greater and greater resonance. And I, and I think that's why, like when you're in conversations like this, or you're listening to conversations like this, you actually feel a resonance because it's, it's like thrumming a chord of something that's true that you know is true and is getting you closer to that, like sense of a whole of wholeness and aliveness and in, I don't know, healing the discord in your own life and in your own body. Yes. And I can't believe what you just elucidated about circadian rhythm and to connect back 
what it means to be discordant in that rhythm. And uh, <laughs> that's why you're a genius. I, don't know. I listened that's to your episodes too. And I think, oh my God, she's a fucking genius. This is a miracle. I love this. Um, so, oh yeah, I, I feel the exact same way. And I, I just, I think that your podcast and your words are a gift in the world. I have one last question. I know we're coming I up know what it's gonna hours be. and we probably both yeah. have things to attend to, naps to get to. Oh, you're going to change it up on me? Well, I, it's not that one yet. Okay. Okay. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to ask that at the end, but my last, my last, my last question is as we come up on three hours. Yes. We are both long form people in a bite sized world. We live in a world of one minute reels and tweets that can only be however many characters a tweet is. And media that gets increasingly shorter and in that space you are still a long form writer and podcaster and i have never speaker both of us and i just want to hear your thoughts on what it means to be a long form person long form person in a a a short (sighs) bite-sized world yeah no, I think a lot of this for me is around the like having to cut off pieces of who I am in order to belong in my past and that most of the world is bite-sized. And again, it's sort of like generalists versus specialists. Not anything is good or bad. They all serve a purpose. But when you are something that's the more rare thing, I guess, that it feels like the story is that you should learn to fit in to the other model of operating And it's just never worked for me. And I think two things right now, like if you had asked me about this a week ago, it might've been different, but I mean, I had an experience recently where over text in a group chain, someone asked our opinions about something and I gave a somewhat long answer. And the next response was, wow, Brandy, that was a lot. (laughs) And I retorted with some sort of like, it was a version of my middle finger. which was like, sorry, not sorry. Like, first of all, if that was um, not over text, that would have taken 60 seconds. So the fact that you get to be there and talk to someone personally isn't my problem. I don't live there, so I can't have in-person conversations. So I had to do it over text. And also I've lived my life having to edit myself down. And so I'm just not going to do that anymore. But in conversation with another friend recently who was on that text thread, he was like, but do you actually want to hear the other people's opinion or do you just need to be heard? And I was like, Oh man, why are, why am I friends with such brilliant people who see me uncomfortably well? Because I think there is a shadow side of that that has spent my whole life not feeling like I was heard because I was told to cut myself off. And now I think I, I'm learning to navigate the space between, which is not speaking out of a place of wound that I'm just hoping to scream enough that someone hears what I have to say. There's a difference between that energy and the energy of speaking from authority and having something important to say. And again, that sort of energy that's like, you don't have to listen. I honestly don't care. This is important for me to say. That's very different than screaming and hope you'll, hoping you'll be heard. And so I'm, I'm sort of, uh, wrestling with that, what that looks like in my life and trying to, um, be more attuned to the energetic difference of how I show up in the world. That's actually can be divisive in my own relationships 
and make other people feel like they're not heard, which is the exact opposite of what I want to do. It's like that whole like equality. Often people feel like have this tendency to think that in order to be equal, you have to squash the other thing down. But equality is, you know, everyone being at a similar level. And, you know, I think in my trying to repair that wound, I think I often make other people feel unheard or so overwhelmed (laughs) that their nervous systems are too triggered to respond. And so that's one thing I think at a personal level I'm, I'm working with, but the other thing that you're actually speaking to of where this comes from, I think in the more empowered way is, yeah, I sort of go on a bit of a rant. in I think our first conversation together in the intro where I talk about like the idea of nutrient density to me is so powerful because the metaphor applies in terms of what we're talking about. And yeah, I guess sort of into that is just, I wanted like, I'm, I just, I trust you, I guess that you can figure out when you're full, you know, when to shut me off, you know, when, you know, like I've sent you some of my essays before and you've been like, not today, (laughs) you know, like, and that's okay. Like you have an, an ability to determine when you're ready to digest something, but I trust that because I have put a lot of care in the world into making that thing that it will be nourishing when you're able to approach it or if it's the right food for you, right? Not every food is the right food for every person, right? And so if if whatever I am offering, whatever I've cooked in the world for you, then if it seems delicious to you, then it's for you, then you should eat it. If it's not, then it's not my problem. And it's not my job to fit into whatever container makes me palatable to other people, because everyone's palate is different. And so my job is only to fill my own cup and offer what fills me because whatever fills me and makes me the most edible, whatever makes me the most nutrient dense will be the most filling to the people who need to eat it. And I trust again, like, I mean, you even told a story about like, was it sheep and phosphorus, like whatever it is in, in, in animals that actually have an ability to figure out the nutrients that they're lacking, they will hunt that nutrient down without realizing like they're not cognitively thinking there's phosphorus in the manure. I'll go eat the manure. Their body knows. And so I trust that if you hear me and what I have to say is actually the nutrient that you need, you will find me and I will feed you. And it will be the thing that you are desperately lacking that keeps you alive. I love that. And I think that that also speaks to I think that speaks to so much of the fear of of speaking our truth into the world for for fear of being judged or canceled or to whatever that is that that not everything is for everyone and it's up to us to make those decisions and I also think it's up to us to lean into our truth. And if our truth is particularly long form, like I believe it is for for both of us anyway, not for everybody, then that is that our wholeness and that our aliveness are, are gifts to give. And it's important for us to have that level of introspection of how has the way that I've been treated in the past informing the way that I speak and how might that be impacting the people around me. And I've, t- you've given me that nugget that I'm going to take into my own life. And I think that that's yes, just yes. Uh, and I think that leads us. I think it's again, like, yeah, 
sorry, I was just going to sort of cap that off by saying, I think it's, it's part of what leads into the gift. Cause I think when you're, when you're operating in the gift, I think you're naturally not operating in your wound. And so when I'm, and I think it's why it can be felt at an energetic level, not just in my own body, but from the people who are listening that when, when it is generously given, when it's a gift from me, I'm not saying it because I'm desperate for your attention. I'm not saying it because I need someone to hear me or to see me or to validate me. I'm saying it because I couldn't stop the flow of it running out of my body. Like I just, I, and that's how I felt like giving you, you know, like the gift this morning was just like, like I couldn't stop this if I wanted, you know? And yeah, why I think like when people ask me what my job is, and I, th- I think I steal this from Kyle, my friend, Kyle, who's just like, your only job in the world is to inspire gratitude. And that for me is like, it just means if I am living in my gift, it means that I'm naturally not desperate for attention. It means that I am so overflowing, like that's what gift is, right? Like gift is not when your cup is drained. It's when your cup is overflowing and you have more to offer anything in the world that asks you to offer out of your empty cup is a, you know, it's, yeah, it's a type of obligation. It's a type of robbery. I mean, I love like Brene Brown who talks about like this practice with her husband where they're like, what percentage are you at today? Every time they each come home and maybe sometimes Brene's at 50 and he's at 20 and they don't equal a hundred, but then you call in other resources, right? But gift is when you're beyond a hundred generally and, or like beyond a hundred, maybe not in all ways, but in a particular way. And if someone is asking from of something of you in that particular way that you are resourced enough to give it. So it's an overflow and overflow is so different than how most of social media and the rest of the world operates these days, which is just please attention, please attention, please attention so that I can survive. And again, at a deep level, that's just a cultural feeling that we will not survive, that we are unsafe. And so yeah, your only job is to inspire gratitude. And I think the only way to actually do that is to be living so deeply within your gift that you can't stop saying what it is that you have to say. And how dare anyone edit that down? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm just sitting here again and just letting your words wash over me and a little bit at a loss for my own words, which I think is perfect. So we'll just let that stand as it is. And I think that that really added something to what it means to live in the gift and what it means to be full. And I know that the wild thing about this podcast is somebody who always measured my energy in spoons, right? Do I have enough spoons for this today? And so many things, especially social interactions, being a sort of introverted human, that social interactions took away spoons and they were hard to replenish. And that I was oftentimes going into the negative. And I wondered, well, the podcast is social and work and all of these things. And I just find myself overflowing with but, spoons. Yeah. Because of conversations yeah, like you. this. And I just I can't believe I get to have them and to make this part of my purpose. Yeah. That's when you know you're really onto something. When you switch from saying, uh, I don't, I have to go to work today to I, I get to do this. I... <laughs> Like before I launched my podcast and David Epstein and Andreas had both said yes to being on my podcast. These were people whose work had just like deeply impacted me. And also I had, I've said this before, I had zero proof of anything 
successful in the world. I had no like public art that would have told you that I was worth spending your time talking to. And they're like, David at the end of our interview was like, I don't have to do these really. I just enjoy being in conversation with minds like yours. Cause it's so much fun. And then partway through like nearly two hours into a conversation with Andreas, it's like, he's, he's in Italy. The sun is like going down the church on, bells on are going off. On Hindus. church <laughs> bells are going off. And I'm like, I don't want to take up too much of your time. And he's like, can we stay longer? You know, like, and not only was it insane for me, for t- these two people who meant so much to me in the world to say yes, before I even had anything to show them, but to then be in the middle of conversation for them both to be like, can we do more was not only such an honor, but it's such a testament to what it is to, I asked people who mattered to me. That's a, their work has been a gift to me. And so when I ask them to do it, everyone is always like, how do you get people to say yes on your podcast? And I'm like, cause I had a genuine, sincere interest in their work. Like that does 90% of the job and then to be in it. And for the, like Andreas, literally, I, I think I tell this in the podcast with him, but I was so overcome when he said yes to being on my show that I was like sobbing in bed and it freaked my cat out so much that he attacked my face. (laughs) Like I was so outside of my own standard behavior that my own cat was like, something is wrong and attacked me. And it's such a ridiculous story, but it's such a, like, I remember like literally falling on the ground in my living room in my last home and being like, I just can't believe it. I can't get, believe that I get to do this. And that energy doing your work out of that energy is, yeah, it's, it's such a gift and it's so different than, and it's, it's victim mentality again, right? I have to go to work today. It's not like you made the choice to go there. You're forced to go do whatever it is that you don't love, which is a yes. And because of culture and the way that economics exists, but nonetheless is also often very much a place of victimhood that we operate in. But regardless, anyway, this is a whole tangent just about like, I get to is such a different posture. It's such a different energy too. And it's a different energy in your body when you choose to approach more things with, I get to rather than I have to, or I'm obligated to, or I don't want to, but, and and whatever comes after that, but, and, and I, I again think that like standing in awe and wonder this at times too is a practice. It is to sit and do dishes and to remember the awe of being here and feeling the water run over your hands. And it is, yeah. you know, the sacred is in all things. Yeah. The awe isn't just the big thing or it's just not the incredible conversation. It's the, all the stuff that happens in between also. Yes. Yeah. Life is everywhere. Thank you for answering that. And now, now is the, now is the last question. Now, here we are. Here we are. Uh, Brandy, what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I was laughing at the beginning when you were like, before this, I was doing all this prep work to look into the entomology of all of these words. And funnily enough, yesterday I was like, I know Kate's going to interview me. And I know that at the end, she's going to ask me what I think groundwork is. And I went to go look up the definition. (laughs) which is just work done in preparation for something that will happen later. 
And um, also in listening back to our meat plus health conversation, I was like, I think Kate answered the exact same way I did to my last question or to like my last question to her as I was inclined to answer to you right now, which is some version of, I think right now I'm, I'm at a place where, you know, sort of coming back to Robert McFarlane or Joanna Macy and the ideas of deep time that I think groundwork for me feels a lot less like work because I, I'm learning, as you said, like the idea of trust that my things will become other things. Like I don't have to work so hard for it. I will become something else over the, over the span of deep time. Like as Robert McFarlane says in some way, like moral code is absurd. Like anything that we're working out in like our tiny, like everyday lives is just completely absurd in the span of uh, like in the view of a mountain or an ocean, you know? And so I think I'm learning to just be, I think it's part of that, like a gray wolf, like instead of what are all the ways I can psychoanalyze that I need to improve and I need to get better and I need to like be a better human and like do my purpose work. And instead over the view of deep time, just trusting that whatever it is that I offer, even if like right now that looks like barely doing anything and just waking up every day and mostly like reading or going on walks and trying to go on this like healing journey that in deep time, people will have the gift that I'm here to offer. And all of that will have been groundwork for future needs down the road. I think the other thing is, and I think this is more of how you answered on my show. I think it's, I don't know, the, the image of just like a, an onion sort of came to mind. Like it's a, if anything, I think groundwork for me has been just a deep and consistent uncovering. And maybe that's the like revelare, like unveiling, like it's, um, finding more of what is deepest within me is the groundwork I'm doing to become more connected to all things and to myself. And therefore hopefully building more resonance for all people and including, you know, seven generations from now. And I think like we've talked about that work is it's simple, but it's so hard. It's so hard. Like the amount it's, you know, it's, it's thinking even again about the idea of nutrient density. Like when you think about like the ingredients on a package of any one food, like the amount of work we have to do to find food that's a single ingredient is a stupid amount of work. The amount of work we have to do in order to uncover really profound truth, really meaningful media, really meaningful relationships is a lot of work it's mostly an act of uncovering more than it is. It's like a subtracting rather than adding, right? Like the simple, most nourishing thing to me is the thing that's usually a singular ingredient. It's steak seared in some salt, you know, and some fat. And it takes in the world that we live in a lot of groundwork to get down to that. And so I think for me, my practice in life of like laying groundwork for myself and future generations. And again, as Andreas would call it, becoming more edible in the world is getting, you know, I mean, I guess it's like the first place I heard this was Marilyn Waring, who's a former PM in or somewhere in parliament in New Zealand in like the eighties, I think who is incredible. I'll give you a link that you can share <laughs> on that. Uh, but she, you know, 
first place I heard someone say that the root, uh, the genesis of the word radical is at the root, right? And so I think we're just getting more and more down to the root, which at the end of the day is just the paradox that lies behind everything. Yep. You said it again. You're just incredible. I just, <laughs> just perfect sound bites after perfect sound bites and, and, and big meals full of wisdom. And so can I actually, um, you can include, include this yeah. or not, but can I read you something that's a poem from Please. someone that I think fits not only what we've talking, uh, talked about, but I think will hit you the same yeah. way it hit me. It'll take a second. I have to go find it yeah. on my bookshelf. Okay. So I know this person, um, this friend, Tara Shaberk, who is both just a writer and a gorgeous poet. And she has a collection of poems called animal like any other, which I believe, yeah, comes from this actual poem inside the collection. Um, the poem itself is called Declaration. I don't know if she has it anywhere online, but if she does, I'll try and share a link to it for you. But it just says, I will begin the meal without a plan. Brown butter and onions. Add garlic too soon. Watch it crisp. Massage a bloody loin with bare hands. Wait for clarity of intention. Press salt into its flesh and thrust the ruminant into my hot iron pan. What a surprise to find patience here. In slow preparation after a youth spent sped up and afraid of long hours doing anything, especially at a stove. This is service to my body, to love, to home. Domesticity can be radical, can be lesbian. There are good ways to stick it to the man. These are good ways to stick it to the man. Cook food, love women, enjoy staying home. Clarity is simple. A quick sear, the thick drizzle of juice from what's here, a simple space between life and food. I will no longer deny the belly's call for fat and flesh. I will love this body because she is hungry and she is mine. I am animal like any other. I love that. I love what she says about you can stick it to the man by staying home, the juicy rumen. I, mm, mm-hmm. We're going to include that for sure. Yeah, it's uh, the no longer denying your body fat and flesh which I think, you know, to us, if we're talking about our work and doing nutrient dense things and speaking in long ways that we will no longer deny ourselves or anybody else flesh or fat that are deeply nourishing. Yes. I no longer, but it's, it's simple. It's simple. simple. And it's easy to deny. Yeah. It's easy to deny. It's, It's a lot of work to get to a place of claiming that I think. Yes. And to be, to feel safe as it, as the case would be. In, in that amount of simplicity. I said something online in an interview the other day where the guy was like, I was telling him how my life right now. And pra- he was like, how do you practice safety or whatever? And I was like, honestly, right now it looks like literally doing nothing. Like I'm waking up every day. I go on a walk after eating some food, staring at the sunrise. And then I come home and I don't know, I like read books. I go lay it at the park. And he was like, that would make my ADHD crazy. And I was like, Yeah. <laughs> Yes. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You don't feel safe in the world either. Yes. And sometimes the work of resting and of finding safety in the world, even when your ADHD calls, even when the desire to work arises, sometimes that's the most important work that you can do for your body and by proxy for others. The rest, yes. you mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, maybe you're, <laughs> maybe the exact thing that you need is to let your ADHD make you crazy, to just stop enough to feel the crazy and to trust that you can survive it. 
I don't know. That's what I'm finding. <laughs> yeah. And it's not pleasant to feel in these big ways. That has been my experience with sitting with discomfort, with diving into rest. Yeah. But to learn to trust that you'll make it through the wave. Mm-hmm. Trust. The emotion will come. But yeah, you trust that you'll make it through the wave. Full circle, Kate. Full circle. We're back to trust. Thank you so much for being here. Tell people where they can find you, though we will have links to everything and so much more in the show notes. Yeah. you can. My website is thisplusthat.com. It's where you can sign up for my newsletter. I, I feel so... I was going to say after we were done recording, but I feel profoundly grateful for you to have read my essays. I think I was thinking this morning because I have been doing other interviews with people. And you know, like David Epstein says, you can tell when people have done their homework. (laughs) And I often feel like if someone hasn't read my, has only listened to the podcast and not read my writing, you haven't actually uh, sort of tapped into my soul. I think most of my soul is actually in my writing. And so, yeah, if, if people want to sign up for my newsletter, that's where I write my essays. I'm really slowed down on them. I haven't actually written an essay in a long time, but I think a new one is coming pretty quickly about the intersections of food and light (laughs) inspired by you and Sarah Kleiner. But yeah, uh, that's where people can sign up for that. And then of course the podcast can be found on any of your, uh, favorite podcast platforms. It's this plus that. And then I'm at this plus that pod on Instagram and Twitter and in real life. (laughs) If if I ever run into you (laughs) in the real world, I like that one in real life. Also, I exist. Thank you. I exist outside of the digital realm. (laughs) <laughs> maybe thank, thank you. you so much for for all of this i i don't think that i could find a thank you that would encapsulate what a gift your words have given to me and what medicine they have been for my soul i find in podcasts like this i often receive exactly the words i need to hear at exactly the time i needed to hear them and you do did that over and over again so thank you thank you for being you well Thank you. Because it's out of my gift. It is an honor and a gift in return. So I similarly would have been zero other places than where I'm sitting right now talking to you. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music. <laughs>